the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. the Bible guys there, if you were watching just a moment ago on uh, Facebook, uh, Steve was explaining to us how he got a cramp in his side <laughs> <laughs> trying to blow this four for a long, long, a lot longer than I could, I'm just saying. What would you say, 50-something seconds? Yeah, it was yeah. the longest ever. You do good, man. I was really amazed Sunday. Sunday I went over and, and attended... Uh, uh, worship with uh, Pastor Scott and all the good folks at Agape, and had a great shot, a, a, a great time. And I got to tell you, uh, New Life is is charismatic, mm. but not as charismatic <laughs> as you guys are. You guys get into it, and your wife really dances well. Well, she learned from the best. <laughs> yeah, you get into it too. Yeah, well, yeah, you got really to. Do. That's right. I like that one song that we sang. Uh, is it holy, holy, holy Lord or whatever? Yes, and, and, yeah. and I love, I like when we start talking about the holiness. Yeah, God. yeah. That's important. Yeah. It's really It changes important. the atmosphere when you do that. Isn't that, isn't that what God wants us to be? Holy, holy. like Set he's holy. That's isn't right. Isn't that what he said? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So when you sing about it. There you go. It tends to get to you. Mm-hmm. He really does. Billy's here. I saw him Sunday. Yep. Steve is here. I saw him Sunday. Mm. Now, uh. Sweetness is not here. I don't, Sweetness. Yeah. But he was there on Sunday. But he day. was there. Yeah. And I talked to him. Sweetness. Scott, he doesn't know what sweetness is. You don't know what sweetness is? No. Seriously, you don't know who the sweetness is? The sweetness. He's a, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm he's sitting a, here. He's a pastor, too. He's a pastor, too. At the church. Yeah, at the church. Sits up on the front row. Yeah. Thank you, second. Over to the left side. You know, if you're looking at the platform, kind of a, like a leprechaun kind of guy. <laughs> I hope he's not listening. I, he probably is. Small guy. I'll tell you in a minute. All right. All right. So anyway, back here on the Davos. Today is a special day. This typically, uh, the Bible guys is just from the five to six o'clock hour. It's one of the most anticipated hours every week people love this hour so i had mentioned to the gentleman how would you guys like to do maybe a show twice a year where we spend four hours Mm -hmm. so that we can really dig into some of the things that we kind of answer as as well as we can but we know that we got other questions so we got to move on Mm -hmm. today 
you guys get to take as much time as you need that's great to answer the questions that are asked and we have a ton of questions that's today that's super i bet we got 30 40 questions here and typically we get about five questions an hour so we're way uh, beyond what we typically have, which means if we don't get to it today, I promise you in the next weeks we'll get to them. Yeah. Right. Plus, we got a special guest yep. at the 3 o'clock hour, and we'll let you talk about him, Steve. Okay. Who is he? He is Rabbi Jan Rosenberg. When I was in the military, I was stationed up in uh, New Jersey from 2005 to 2009, and he was the rabbi of the Messianic congregation that I attended up there, so he was my rabbi for four years. And uh, we had talked about having him on um, a few months ago to maybe get a perspective from uh, a Jewish perspective, right? Because we are all goy, we're all Gentile believers in the Hebraic roots way in the Messianic faith. And so uh, we kind of threw it out there to maybe get some people that, what kind of question would they be interested in asking an actual Jewish rabbi who was yeah. raised in a Jewish home and, you know, and has that background. Um, so he's got an interesting testimony. Um so we'll let him give be that. On at three o'clock. I have a question for him. Okay. What is the biggest misconception that Christians have about Judaism? It's hmm. be a good question. Yep. Yeah, you know, he might need more than an hour for that. Yeah, he <laughs> might. <laughs> might. Yeah. I mean, look, I people know that I'm a big Lenny Bruce fan. Lenny Bruce was Jewish, and he always took exception to Christians wearing crosses. Hmm. He says, that's kind of like to a Jew, you're walking around wearing little electric chairs. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. You know, and I, I, I thought of, I've thought about that for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I heard that back in the sixties and I still think about, yeah. does, does that, you know, but that the cross is an affront to everybody else that doesn't ex- accept it. Mm-hmm. Before I came here, I just finished recording lecture six on the history of the church semester three on the inquisition. Oh. And there will be nothing more sadder to research and to look up and what we did in the name of Christ, what mm. the Catholic Church did in um, in the um, 1500s, 1400s to all of the Jewish people. And you want to know why they're not open to the cross? You want to know why they're not open to yeah. the gospel? You want to know why they blame Christians for what Hitler did? Because that still resonates with That's them. right. It does. Because when you have people who were burnt at the stake for, for refusing to give up their faith— when their children were ripped from them, their parents were killed. They told their grandchildren and their great grandchildren, "Don't ever believe what yep. these people have to say because they will kill you." Well, that's why a lot the Jewish people still have bad feelings against yeah. the German people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's just honestly, and yeah. the, and the Christian Church that wasn't one of our brightest times either. No, no it was not. It you was know? not. I mean, was that's it, what happens when religion takes over relationship. When you lose relationship with God for the sake of some man-made constructed religion, which is what became um, this this animal known as um, modern-day Christianity, mm-hmm. and and unfortunately at that time in the form of was mostly known as the as the Catholic Church. All right, let's start off with this question. I think this is a good one to start off with. In today's world, there seems to be so many who struggle in the area of mental health. From anxiety and depression to mood disorders and eating disorders, the suicide rate in the U.S. has also risen more than 30% since 1999. Because of this increase, we have recently seen a rise in awareness about mental illness 
an attempt at trying to break the stigma that has historically plagued those who suffer. What is your take on this increase in mental illness, and how can we as a church do better at ministering to those who struggle with their mental health? Also, what are some practical things we can learn from God's Word that will help someone who is believing for healing from mental illness, either for themselves or for a loved one? Good question. Very good question. Big question. Um, I, I guess I'll start with the the first part of that. Um, I think part of the part of what we're seeing now is that the world is seriously upside down, particularly here in um, the first world. We have become so privileged that we have the time to be depressed, uh, and and that's. You know, that seems odd, but we now have more leisure time and more opportunity than any other nation on the face of the planet. And unfortunately, um, it's not particularly healthy either. And we consume a constant digest of um, new snippets. And, the, you know, the old statement, if it leads, it bleeds, is still true today. So most of the news we consume is pretty uh, awful, uh, to be real blatant about it. So we take a generation of kids. Um, who, by and large, didn't think they had great opportunities and then force-feed them a constant diet of the worst things happening on the planet. And what you end up with is an entire generation of kids who are pretty desperate for any hope whatsoever uh, because they've just grown up um, in a situation where they don't seem they, – they look around the world and they're constantly told that the, the world is, is melting and, the, and we're all going to be dead in 30 years or the whole world is freezing and we're all going to be dead in 30 years or fill in the blank, the trash is going to kill us in 30 years. Whatever it is, there's there's something in the news constantly that's going to kill us all in the next 30 or 50 years. So um, it, it's hard if you don't have a right understanding of your relationship with something eternal. It's very easy to look around the world and go, there's no what's the point? Yeah. Well, maybe you guys want to talk about this. I mean, the prevailing philosophy of the age is nihilism. Mm -hmm. All right? And nihilism has no hope at the end. It's nothing but a black pit. That's all it really is. You guys want to talk about that? Well, that's what we're – that's what's sold to our our children uh, predominantly in in the schools. There is – there is no God, and if there is no God, there is no purpose. If there's no purpose, then you just do what you want to do, and at the end of the day, you close your eyes and – and you go to sleep, and you hope you wake up. Yeah, right. And but because they they believe in this kind of circular type uh, reasoning, they have no they have no hope. In the past, um, you know, we had a completely different philosophy in, in the United States where we so, we gave people hope, and that hope was found in uh, in the Messiah, and that allowed a society to function uh, to the point that even during the Great Depression, people didn't lock their doors at night. Mm-hmm. During right. the Great Depression, you could let kids play outside in the front yard and without fear of someone kidnapping them or taking them away. You could leave your cars unlocked without the fear of someone stealing them. This idea today that we're told, well, crime is the way it is because there's so much uh, unemployment, that's not true. We've had lots of worse unemployment in the past, but people didn't result to the same actions. Why? Right. Because we had... Uh, a hope that anchored us. Yeah. Uh, and when you take the hope away that anchors us, you destroy the society that you believe you're trying to build. This is what's happening. I used to tell people this. I, my wife and I lived overseas for more than half of my life, and um, and primarily in Europe, um, Western Europe. And so I used to tell people when I would come back to the States and minister, I used to tell them, listen, I live in the future, and I've come back to the past to tell you what the future looks like if we don't change. Because Europe is about 30, 40 years ahead of where we, uh, of where we are now. But we are rapidly catching up with them, having jettisoned our faith in the things that 
give us that uh, give us that hope. I would say that's the main reason, though, is the lack of hope. And because if you start going through the scriptures, you find over and over again in the stories that when there was no hope, God brought hope. And if some of the despair was because of sin, then repentance brought people back. And there was always this hope that God would handle the situation, restore the situation. And you had preachers and, and, and fellow people in the church that would share those stories. But as far as dealing with it from people who are, who are struggling, um, you, you've got to encourage people to go to some good, solid Christian counselors yep. because there are three different ways, I think, that we have to look at people who are dealing with that deep level of um, psychological issues, whether it's because of trauma, so maybe it's emotional, uh, could be physical, uh, in which they really need a, a really miraculous healing, um, or it could be spiritual, and, and you really have to know to be able to discern what you're dealing with. Because just like someone uh, could be born, um, you know, with a missing limb or something, I believe it's possible for people to be born with these imbalances, but the, and they need a healing, uh, but they may need to be dealt with chemically, or they maybe they were people who had trauma and they need to be dealt with with counseling to get healing, um, you know, or whatever the case, or if it's spiritual, because we see times that when there were um, medical um, names given to some of the things that were being dealt with, like one of the uh, demons that people that Jesus was dealing with says he was throwing down had an epileptic seizure. Well, some of those things are actually demonic. They're not they're yeah. just a physical representation of a spiritual event. And people don't like to talk about that because you have to ask somebody, go, well, where did all these demonic things go if they ceased in the first century? Did all these demonic things just end? No. But again, you got to, with wisdom and counsel and the right people is how that needs to be approached. I, I think that the scripture tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And I think that a lot of, like what Billy was said, a lot of the, a lot of the news that's being put out, it, it it opens the door for a spirit of fear to come in. And now people are afraid. This person mentioned anxiety and so yeah. forth. Anxiety is just a nice word for fear. Yeah. Right. And, and so we're uh, we're afraid of what our friends think. We're afraid of what people will make of our reputation. We're afraid to to talk to people because of what they might think about us. We're afraid of what people might think about the way we look. We're afraid about how people might think that we're dressing. All of this is fed to us by the society and i think it opens a door to a spirit of fear and you can really only deal with these things in a spiritual in a spiritual manner but reprogram like was, your mind you got to do so yeah. many different things to approach it Sorry. yeah no it's okay uh, but like steve was saying i think that there's so many people who we don't like to talk about that we'd rather medicate it mm-hmm. you don't get rid of a demonic spirit by medicating your body but what you do is the, the demonic spirit needs a body to animate itself and if you drug your body enough you just limit the spirit's ability to animate you know a body that's you know you know kind of half uh, enabled, yeah. but you need to deal with things in the in the spirit. And unfortunately, uh, most people will default to the uh, default to the natural. All right, real mm-hmm. quick, speak about renewing one's mind. Well, I mean that's the key. There, there's plenty of places where it talks about that. I quote Philippians all the time when it talks about think on these things, which things are good, things are lovely, things that are praiseworthy, things are of a good report. Uh, this is one of the other things. I, that I was going to add to this, and I know my wife's listening. This is one of the things she gets mad at me about. Change the way you think. Mm-hmm. If I say, she's like, well, not everybody's as strong-willed as you are about something. But if you don't like the way you're processing something. Your wife says that to the, you? Yes, she does. My <laughs> wife says that to me. <laughs> she she really said, not everybody's as strong as you are. Okay. Re- I mean, that's what she said. Yeah. That's what you have to do. You have to reprogram the way you think because the way you think changes how your body reacts. And you really do need to reprogram your mind. And you got to renew it with the word. So if you're full of fear and anxiety, then get the word in your mind. If you're full of doubt, get encouragement in your mind, and then your body will chemically respond differently 
to how you were thinking and how you were speaking. And if all you do is listen to the garbage that Billy started off talking about, then you are going to naturally become depressed. Right. So, I, you know, I asked a question of people. It's in Romans where it says renew your mind, isn't it? I don't remember. I, mean, I believe that's where Paul talks about that. I, I came to a place in, in my life that I finally realized as you read Scripture, and I've talked to you about this, Scott, that you either believe or you don't That's right. Yeah. right. believe. And not to believe in a small area is to not believe at all, I believe. Yeah. Okay, now I, that could be wrong. I don't know. But that's how I feel. And since I gave up smorgasbord Christianity mm-hmm. and said, God, you say it, and I'm I'm going to believe what you said. I can't say that I may live it, mm-hmm. but I'll believe it. And my Christian walk has changed 180 degrees. Yeah. And that whole positive thought process is there. Yeah. Because I started believing, you know, in the Bible, how many times does it says it says fear not? 365. All right. So we got one for every day of the year. Yeah. Kind of important yep. that God commands us That's right. to fear. Because when you start fearing, you know what you're saying? You're saying God doesn't exist. That's right. God's it, not big enough to handle your problems. That's exactly him. right. You're yep. saying that you're an atheist at that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. We've got something going on here at the station that, that you know, some people say that, uh, you know, a person is 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 suffering from a disease and, they don't give them much hope. A couple of years, they say. And I reminded everybody, our God's a big God. Yeah. You know, he can take care of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've known many people who give a who have a terrible prognosis like that, and they outlive it by years and years, if not decades. Yeah. So I've seen it disappear before. Yeah, Amen. I've seen that too. So if you give God the opportunity, he will, he will, he will move in. But renewing your mind is a big yep. deal. People... Like you know, they say, you know, bad news sells. People will purchase, you know, magazines that that have bad news or newspapers. You start pushing out good news, and a lot of people won't even won't even purchase the things. Yeah, we are, attention to you. yeah we're naturally inclined to like uh, bad news, but that's what we should pay attention to. If that's what your flesh likes, your spirit probably hates it. Right. So recognize that flaw in you. If your flesh is really liking this gossipy thing here. Reject that and begin to meditate on the Word of God. That's why the Bible says you have to meditate on the Word day and night, not occasionally or every once in a while or on Sunday morning. Meditate meditate on the Word day and night. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So it's a, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. I heard that on you. Sunday somewhere. Did you really? <laughs> <laughs> I heard exactly oh, that. Yeah, get a good job on that Sunday. We'll Thanks, be back. Sir. We'll talk more. We're into the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes, we are. Cool. We'll talk about that as well. That's why Robert Steinbach wasn't here yesterday. That's a, that's a very important time for a, a Jewish for the person. first day. Yep. And he, he couldn't make it. So um, just know that that happens with, with Robert at times. He's a good man. And uh, he keeps the festivals. Wish more Christians would be from the festivals. <laughs> They're All going right. to now, or going to in the future if they don't start it now. That's right. yeah. We'll talk about it when we come back here. It's a special four-hour edition of the Bible Guys. You got a question? Bible Guys at SalemLR.com, or you can call them 823-0965. We got about a minute left here. We are in a 
um, celebration right now. Mm-hmm. It's called Tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Shukot. Shukot. I, I got it right. Yep. Okay. So that's going on. Um, it's important that we understand what these feasts are all about because there's a lot, and there's, there's questions throughout all these questions we've asked that kind of touch on it. Mm-hmm. Like, why does the Christian church not do this? All right, and it's, it's a good question. We'll answer that. But about Sukkot, there's a thing called a lulav, and uh, you know, Pastor Scott talked about it on Sunday during his sermon, and he was really good in showing an illustration about we think the lulav is weird, uh, but some things that we do in our culture, people would think, is weird. And we'll talk about all of that when we come back. Your questions at 823-0965. All right, back with you. I told you we are going to talk about something called a lulav. And uh, this goes along with the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm going to turn this question over to Scott, and then I got a question directly for Pastor Hess. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, the lulav. Um, the lulav is um, is um, what we call the four spices. These are these are uh, basically three branches of uh, different trees, and then one uh, was called an etrog. It's like a big, uh, looks like a looks like a large lemon, and all of this together is called the lulav collectively. But really, the lulav itself refers to just the palm frond, but all of it together is referred to the lulav. You have the, the palm frond, you have the myrtle tree, and then you have a willow. And um, each of these grow ubiquitously throughout the land uh, of Israel. And they represent basically there's just abundance of these things. So it shows a great plenty and a great uh, blessing of God. But each of them grow in a different place. Some grow on the mountains, some grow in the valley, some by river brooks. Uh, and um, because the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrating uh, the fact that the children of Israel dwelt in Israel or dwelt in the wilderness in booths and how God provided for them in the midst of all that uh, by his presence. Uh, the lulav represents for us that um, whether the children of Israel were in the mountains, in the valleys, in the desert, by the sea, that God was always with them bringing abundance and making provision for them when they were a people without a country, a people without uh, without a home. And they would take this and they would they would worship the Lord. The Bible says that they would actually wave this before God. And there's a way that they do this where they, they raise it up to God and they bring it into their heart and they push it out towards the world and they bring it back to themselves. So it's a, it's a cycle of, of worshiping God through his abundance. And they turn and they go around the points of the, of the compass showing north, south, east, and west, and every point in between how no, no matter where they turn, God brings his abundance and his uh, prosperity. And God commanded that we do that. Sounds strange to us today, but it's very normal if you're a biblically thinking uh, person. Okay. And yeah. he, it, we're told about these different, there's several feasts that we're told mm-hmm. that we're supposed to observe. Yeah. And where is that found? Is that found throughout the Old Testament or what? Yes, it is. Uh, um, Leviticus 23 is where the feasts are given to us. And then they're repeated throughout uh, the law of God. You see them throughout the uh, prophets. Uh, Zechariah even tells us that... Uh, when after Messiah returns and steps on the Mount of Olives and the thing splits in half and uh, he uh, becomes king of the whole earth, he says um, every family of the earth will come and worship the Lord in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they don't, then they will be, um, they'll be punished with, uh, with no rain. So it's all throughout the, uh, the scriptures. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and we even see the Messiah. We see Yeshua uh, partaking in the uh, 
uh, feasts. And for all those who claim that Paul did away with all of that, we continually see Paul going, I got to get back to Jerusalem. There's a feast coming up. I got to get back to Jerusalem. There's a feast coming up. So uh, we, we see throughout the Bible from from Leviticus moving forward, the, the feasts all the way through to Revelation where they are seen in picture. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, when we read the Bible and we see phrases, um, for example, if I was to, to say to you, I... We ate hot dogs, hamburgers, and shot off fireworks. Do you know what day I'm talking about? Probably 4th of July. There you go. If I said we had a break, some turkey and some dressing, what Thanksgiving. day? There you go. So certain phrases automatically tell us what day we're talking about. Right. When the Bible, the same thing is true. It's just that we don't recognize the day because we don't know much about it. For example, when the Bible says, um, this is the day the Lord has made, we'll rejoice and be glad in it. That's not just your regular Monday or Tuesday or Sunday you go to church. That is the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. Yep. When, when, uh, whenever the Bible says that the stone that the builders rejected became the chief of the corner, that's at the Feast of Tabernacles. When the Apostle Peter says, let's build three tabernacles and stay here at the Mount of Transfiguration, that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. When Jesus said, uh, any man who's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, that was a Feast of Tabernacles. When he said, I'm the light of the world, the world that was a Feast of Tabernacles. When, when, um, when the Bible tells us that they... I uh, just drew a blank there. Had another one lined up, um, <laughs> but the, the Bible is full of these 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 catchphrases that tell anyone who knows the customs of the of the day what particular feast we're talking about. Oh yeah, the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, that was the feast of tabernacles. When he wrote in the sand, that was the feast of tabernacles. So all these things happened at the feast of tabernacles. But when you decontextualize the scripture, you don't really understand what he's talking about. So it helps to contextualize all of that. And it firmly makes sense after that. To the point that I believe you said on Sunday that um, 70% of the Gospels actually take place during one of the High Holy Days? 73%. There's 1,280 days of ministry, three and a half years, 1,280 days. But of that, we the, the best scholars tell us that the, that the Gospels only record 17 days, maybe 18 days of the whole life of Jesus, which is 1.4% of all of his ministry. And of that 1.4%, 73% of that 1% happened at a feast day. It's pretty amazing. And it's kind of important. Just a bit. feast days then. Yep. Just a bit. Because he did certain things on certain feast days for a reason. For a reason. To fulfill scripture. And the, Holy, and the Holy Spirit selected only these 17 days out of his whole ministry and said, this is enough information to feed the body of Messiah for 3,000 years. And it primarily deals with the feast of the Lord. So let me ask this, and then I'll move on to uh, Pastor Hess's question, because I see him chomping at the bit. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. He's ready to go. And, and he, anyway, He's always chomping at the bit. He looks that way all the time. So when Christ was preaching, he was preaching to the Jew. That's, that's important yeah, for us to understand. Yeah. Yep. And that's why Paul's so important, mm-hmm. because Paul came to preach to the Gentile. Correct. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And when you follow his ministry, what you find interestingly is when he, we follow his ministry, he always went to the Jew yeah. first. Yeah, he tried he, to be an apostle and to then, the Jew. They just wouldn't let him. And to the Jew to the, first and then, then to, the, to the Gentile. That's right. right. So every time when you follow his ministry, you'll see he is the apostle to the Gentile, but he would always go to the Jews first. There's a symbiotic relationship meant to exist between Jew and Gentile. And you know, the Bible says, how many times does the Bible say the uh, I forget, I looked it up one time, how many times the Bible says the word one another, you know, like love one another, be kind mm-hmm. to one another. If you look at the context, it's about the Jews and the Gentiles coming together in the congregation, and Paul is saying, okay, now be kind one to another, be understanding of one another, because we were so different, yet we were becoming 
one. one. And uh, so there is a blending together of those two um, of those two things. And really in doing that, he fulfills what the original purpose of Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to be God's chosen priesthood. It wasn't supposed to be the Levites who were priests and they were ministering to other uh, Hebrews. They that was, were all a, that was an important story. That, and they were that, supposed to be uh, priests to us. The pastor talked about. Yeah. Yeah. A light to the Gentiles. There you go. Explain why the Levites ended up being the priestly tribe. Yeah. Well, obviously, God wanted all of Israel to be uh, to be priests. It was going to be a nation of, of priests. But Paul it, says we are. Yes. Now, we are, uh, yes, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Uh, and uh, which is really interesting because priests are not royal, mm-hmm. but somehow we are a royal priesthood. It deals mm-hmm. with the whole idea of being a, both a king and a priest under God, the order of Melchizedek, who was king of Salem. Um, but um, back to the story, the only tribe that drew near to the mountain, the only tribe that drew near unto God was found in the person of Moses, who happened to have been um, a Levite. And through that, the rest of the tribes ran away from the presence of God, and Moses drew near to the presence of God, and God then selects a tribe of Levi to be his representatives and his mouthpiece to the, um, to the people. But that was not the original plan. And the only thing was the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it was also like um, cemented during the um, golden calf. Yes, as well. Because that's when they went up and started slewing some folk. Slewing. Yeah. Okay. S-L-E-W. Slew. Yeah. I-N-G. That sounds like a southern guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. King Pastor Hess, a question for you. I love to hear you sound the shofar during our celebration of various feasts. This is talking about what happens over at uh, Agape. Can you tell us the significance of sounding the shofar and what that meant to the Jewish people? (laughs) Yes. So the commandment is very vague. It just says that the trumpet shall be um, a day of blowing or a day of trumpeting during the fall feast times, but it wasn't the only time. It was also during the new moon. Um, so part of keeping up with the calendar was whenever there was a new moon, uh, they would go out and sight it. And then when they sighted it, they would blow the shofar to announce it. That's recorded for us in Psalms uh, 81, um, that they were supposed to do that. But the significance of it, this will get into, I think we have a question about prophetic things. Um, the rabbis say that the adversary shakes at the sound of the shofar. Mm-hmm because the sound of the shofar is going to herald the coming of the Lord. And part of that, it goes, and there's twofold to this. So the story goes that when um, uh, Abraham went to bind Isaac, and he saw the ram with its horns caught in the thicket, that he saw, and he went over and he got it, and he offered that one. Well, according to the rabbis, whether you believe it or not, it's a great story. But the great story is that those two horns were kept, and one of those horns was blown at Mount Sinai. And, and, but here's something you got to look at. Who blew the horn? Yeah. God blew the horn at Mount Sinai. Doesn't tell us who it is, but God blew the horn. And so now on the seventh month, on the first day of the month, we're supposed to blow trumpets to remember an event. And we're supposed to remember when God came down onto the mountain at Mount Sinai. And oh, by the way, you've got 10 days before he comes and you better get right. Mm-hmm. And so it's a memorial of when God came down, gave us his commandments and oh, by the way, you're going to give an account for how you live for those commandments. And so in the seventh month, they blow that uh, to remember that period of time. And they also blew it on that day to coronate the kings of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so it is it interesting to me that a certain king might return around a certain period of time mm-hmm. in which trumpets are blown all the time? Possibly, probably, most definitely. 
but we won't we'll get into that much later <laughs> um and so they say that the second horn from that ram that was caught will be blown when the messiah comes or when he returns so the significance of the blowing of the shofar is to call in for the feast but it also reminds us when god came and when he is coming back so it is a very significant event uh, and they don't they didn't blow it all the time sometimes they would blow it on the, the just shabbat but they didn't just blow it walking down the street because right. it was set aside for a specific period of time and then during the fall to announce when he's going to come uh, and to prepare us for that for that coming that's why you see the references in corinthians when it talks about in the twinkle of an eye at the sound of the last trump and in uh, thessalonians when it talks about us being caught up at the sound of the trump that that trumpet is announcing his coming so that's why people it, it ministers to their spirit because they know it says something about the coming of okay, the Okay so when it says trumpet is that the shofar? Yeah I believe it is yes. Okay. But there were also silver trumpets that they Yeah they the long correct. Yeah, they yeah. used those though <laughs> to move the armies of Israel around but the shofar was dedicated specifically for this. So was it the shofar that they sounded for the walls of Jericho to fall? I'd have to. Look. I would say yes, it was because no. they weren't. No, they were commanded. They did have those at that time, yeah. so it may have been the silver ones. Yeah. I'd have to look and see which word was used there. But okay. you, but you would think that when the Lord returns uh, with the shout and with the with the trump of God, that He would be. Um, it would be the shofar. Yes, yeah. I would agree because I believe that tradition. It's a good story that God's going to blow the trumpet because we that ram was a picture of Yeshua, the Jesus. Right. That's when when Jesus said. Abraham lived to meet, see my day. That's what Abraham saw when he turned and saw that ram caught in the thicket. He saw what was going to happen on that mountain 1,400 years into the future. Now, you know, that you've, you know that you've just upset a bunch of people, That's right? fine. Okay. As long as we come back here, because a whole bunch of people are sitting out there right now listening, going, no man knows the day or the hour. Yeah. So we can talk well, about that and later. We, and we, well, do I got time for a break? You want to touch it now? I got to go to break. Okay, okay. I'll get it when we get All back. All right, we'll come back to it. I'll, tr- right. I'll try and shorten it. We'll talk further. Uh, Bible guys are here. They're going to be here until 6, so get involved in the conversation. A lot of you already have. I mean, I've got a whole lot of questions. We're going to talk about drinking as well. We can get into that. All right, so stick around. we got a lot more coming your way. The phone number again is 823-0965. All right, let's go back to Steve Hess. You were saying. Okay, so the point that Billy brought up right before we went to the break was um, that blowing of the trumpet, there was a period of time that when it comes during that um, uh, Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah time period, there's a, um, a coronation, as we said, of the king, but then it transitions into um, they blow the trumpet, and then at this point they go from blowing it at this time to blowing it every hour on the hour the closer they get to Yom Kippur. So when people say, as Billy was bringing up, that, well, no man knows the day of the hour, this could have been an allusion to this period of time because during this 10 days there were so many different days and the trumpet was blown on so many different times that basically it could have been an illusion that he was pointing to saying it's going to be during the time, but you're not going to know the day or the hour because even Paul said, you have no need that I write to you concerning the season, but of that day we don't know. So it's very probable because of so so much that Yeshua did during the spring feast. There's a lot of very great prophetic things in the fall feast that when this comes, you get to the Day of Atonements, and we see this played out in Book of Revelation chapter 19 when the judgment seats, and there's just so much that we really don't have time to go into great detail, but there's a lot going on during this time with all the shofar blowing. 
I think right. it's I think it's interesting that um, the verse that Pastor Steve just quoted that he says you have no need that I write unto you for you yourself know the um, you have no need to know no I'm sorry you don't have any need that I write unto you regarding the the, the the times and the seasons he writes this to the Thessalonians which I find interesting yeah. because the Thessalonians are a a Greek church or right. a, 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 a Gentile congregation. So apparently somebody, if not the apostle Paul himself had already taught this church enough about the times and the seasons, the Moedim, the appointed times of the Lord where Paul said, you know what? I'm going to write to you, but I don't even need to deal with the, uh, the feast of the Lord because you guys are already fully aware of that. And I think that's, I think it'd be a very hard letter to write to a lot of churches today. I would agree. All right, we got six minutes. All right, before we got to get the news, we're almost through the first hour of a very amazing, a very cool four-hour show today. I've been taught all my life that it was wrong, or at least a bad witness, to drink alcohol. But late, lately, I've heard several of my Christian friends and colleagues talking about drinking. So, what does the word say regarding Christians drinking alcohol? Steve has already whipped out his sword. <laughs> Paul said, it out of the skip. We will say this. There's a point where Paul was writing to Timothy, and he tells him to take a little wine for his stomach, right? Yeah. And then when he's also writing to— But was that alcoholic wine? Or of course was it was. that just Cause grape juice? Mr. Welch was born in the 1800s, <laughs> not <laughs> in the 080s. Uh, and he also writes to Timothy when he's given him the— um, uh, prescription for how leaders should conduct themselves as far as deacons and bishops, and he tells them that they have to limit the amount of alcohol that they right. can take. Mm-hmm. But what does he address over and over and over and over again is drunkenness. drunkenness. Yep. That's the sin. A wine and there's even, for those of us that believe in the totality of the scriptures, there's in Deuteronomy 14, it says... That if the journey is too long for you, that so you are not able to carry your tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You shall spend that money on whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep or wine or similar drink. So the commandment is not against drinking. The commandment is against drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness leads to foolishness. Don't get drunk. But the commandment is not against general drinking. You know what the pilgrims drank mostly? Beer. That's exactly <laughs> right, because the water was foul. Yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, just add one more thing in here. Um, whenever the apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he says, "He says, you know, what is this I hear from about you guys? You guys are coming together to take the Lord's supper, and some of you are actually getting drunk." He said, "Don't do that." He said, "If you want to drink, you drink at home, but don't do this." So obviously, the communion wine they were drinking was obviously fermented um, alcohol. Now, the question is about your witness. The Bible does say if you do anything that causes your brother to stumble, to you it becomes sin. We live in a culture today that if a Christian was seen drinking outside, out uh, you know, in public, it could very well cause young Christians to stumble, others to stumble. And so don't do it. But apply that to everything in your life. Amen. Not just alcohol. If if we take that verse as being where it is, that means your your manner of speech, the way you dress, young ladies, young men, the way the people that you're with, the, the you know your associations. It goes uh, across the board. Now, if you're living in Europe, uh, that's a this this thing is a this question would never even come right, up. Uh, right. It's a completely different world, a completely different society. If you're in the land of Israel, this question is a non sequitur. It never even comes up. 
This is a Ameri- an American cultural thing. But you are supposed to be aware of those who are watching you and live your life accordingly. But as far as the actual substance itself, here's the deal. If Jesus <laughs> cannot, if God cannot tempt any man with evil, and the first miracle Jesus does is make wine, and not just make wine, but the best, best wine, the best. then it cannot be wrong. Jesus is no party to evil. It must be a godly thing to create it, and therefore it cannot biblically be shunned or preached against. Culturally, it can be attacked because we live in this weird culture. But biblically, if you're a biblically-minded person, a scripturally-minded person, there's absolutely nothing scripturally wrong with it. But when it comes to what culture perceives, you need to live your life in such a way as to not make people stumble, if at all possible, in that way. All right. I think we can answer this question in two minutes. All mm-hmm. right. That's all the time you okay. got. So what is the significance of facing east while praying? I see a lot of churches doing that. What do so many, why do so many churches face east? Hmm. I, don't, question? I, don't I don't know why churches do, but I know why synagogues do. Okay. Well, the, the commandment, when they built the, ter- the temple and, and um, Solomon was given the big prayer after the dedication, and he said, those that face this place, he will, that you will answer their prayers. So that's part of the reason why that they face towards the east. Yeah. And I think a lot of churches, particularly in Europe, are are positioned so that they, I don't know if they would face east, but they face Jerusalem. Yeah. So the, the, the axis, the long axis of the church faces Jerusalem. And if you go to um, a funeral and you go to a graveside and people are buried— Every person's head is facing the same direction. Every face, if they, when you, if you stood a body straight up, they're all facing east because Messiah's going to split the eastern sky. So they're all looking towards the east, which would obviously be our direction for, for Israel. There you go. Now you got the there answer. You, go. there. Now, you can go to bed tonight <laughs> and sleep. But you better sleep facing east. That's it. No, just kidding. Just kidding. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. We've got a whole lot more questions. We've got questions from you as well. You can send them to us. The rabbi's coming next hour as well. I'm sure he'll have some things that he'll say that will elicit some questions as well. The Dave Ellswick Show, we're back with you. Don't forget, we're going to Dallas to do the show Thursday from Dallas at the President's Rally. We're the only station in Arkansas that was invited. We got more coming your way in just a moment. Today is a special edition of the Bible Guys. It's a four-hour edition of what is typically a one-hour show each Tuesday here on the Dave Ellswick Show. It's something that I just felt led to start. We started it like what, once a month. Is that yeah. how it started? Mm-hmm. Then it ended up like every other week. Mm-hmm. Then it got to be every week, and mm-hmm. now we're up to four hours. That's right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
there is the possibility that this could become a four-hour show each mm. week. Wow. Because people are interested in yes, this. Yes, they are. Look at the questions we have. Yeah, we got tons of questions, and uh, that's good. That's that's really good. All right, something I do at my church and uh, with my life groups is um, we teach a, a lot of Jewishness to our life groups because being a Christian means that we're grafted into the vine, mm-hmm. and the vine is the Jewish religion. Yeah, I've learned a few things from Hess. <laughs> He's taught me a few things. I would admit that on air if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> so we, what, what I'm excited about most about today is that we're bringing a rabbi on mm-hmm. with us today, and we're, and he's, he's a believing rabbi. That's he, right. He, he is a born-again rabbi. Don't call him a Christian because right. he's still a Jew. That's right. Okay, so with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to introduce him to us, uh, Steve, if you would. Okay. Um, his name is Ran, <laughs> Rabbi Jan Rosenberg. He was my rabbi when I was stationed up in New Jersey for the four years from 2005 to 2009. Uh, I got to sit underneath his ministry and, and learn a lot Um uh, during that four years, uh, great man, um, very gentle and easy person to talk to, uh, and he would love to hear. If you, if you have any questions that you haven't sent in yet, uh, he would love to answer them. So, uh, Rabbi, are you there? Here. Excellent. All right, we got it. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, we hear you just fine. So, Rabbi, I want you to start off this day. I want, I want to just tell you it's an honor to be here, and I, I think I'm becoming a fan of the show. Oh. I listened yesterday to the show, and I was listening to the first hour. Uh, you guys are great. I love the interaction. <laughs> yeah, we, we're all, all a bunch of you. friends. That, that's important. Uh, we may have some disagreements. We may have some disagreements about the faith, but guess what? We know what the faith is really about. Mm-hmm. All right, and that, that's the most important when it comes down to Jesus. And uh, you can't. You may have seen it if you've been watching this on Facebook, but. There's an American flag that flies, of course, in my studio, and there is a Jewish flag that flies in my studio. Both are here for people to see, and I think that's important. But let me ask you, being a rabbi, to give us what happened with you in your life that you became a Jesus follower. Okay, I was raised in a conservative Jewish home. Uh, in high school, I became more observant and started going to an Orthodox synagogue. Uh, but my first real encounter with God came when I was three and a half years old. I almost died. It's the first thing I remember in life. Uh, I had croup was going around, and I remember my mom wrapping me in my blue blankie, <laughs> and I remember the lights of the taxi and the ambulance and or the um, the hospital. And I had an experience where I saw this dark image, cloaked image, hooded, with a bony finger, and he said, you'll never see your parents again. And I knew it was death, and I remember calling on God at three and a half years old. Now, that was 1956. They didn't have stuff on television like that yet, and I'd never been to a movie yet. And so the image, when I saw later on, I, I couldn't believe how how real it was when I saw this later on in movies and other places, but that got me started. I wanted to serve God, and uh, whatever I did in life, I wanted it to be honoring to Him because I knew that my life was spared. And 
later in college, um, I had some different encounters, but in college I was uh, going to university in, in, uh, in Philadelphia, Temple University, and um, I had basically a power encounter with God. Uh, I found myself in a black Pentecostal church, you know, where most Jewish kids hang out. And um, uh, I, I, I say I was on my way to the Hillel house, and I made a right turn. And I, but one of the things, I was very defensive. People would say, they say, God bless you. I say, yeah, my God, not your God, my God, not your God. And I grew up with an understanding that it was us and them. Uh, Jews and everybody else I thought were all Christians. So I thought Hindus and Muslims, and I thought they were all part of Christians, like same as saying Gentile, you know? And I knew that they uh, spoke Latin in church and believed in three gods. That's about all I knew. And, uh, and, and so my understanding, in fact, I'll tell you something funny. I mean, you know, one of the things people have to remember, too, is culture is very important, um, but people make a lot of decisions based on that. Uh, the assumption is that everybody knows what you know and uses the language that you use. And when they don't, you'll see it in people say, how do you about sharing with Jewish people? I say, well, you don't even know how to share with interdenominational things. You, it, it's like you don't come in and say, why do they do it differently? People say, why do they do it wrong? Mm, right. And so they'll say you put too much emphasis on culture and I said, you realize that everything you do is culture. I said, no, 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 what we do is biblical. <laughs> right. But yeah. the outworking of what we do is cultural. So one of the things that was funny was I, I saw a sign in my hometown. It said, Jesus saves. I thought it was a bank. I had no reference to understanding what Jesus saves meant because I had never been exposed to that. And I also knew that when my brother would be chased home from school, uh, I mean, chased, chased home around uh around Passover uh, and Easter, uh, that the kids from the parochial school were chasing him home saying, you're a Christ killer. And mm. I said, we don't know anybody named Christ, and we can kill anybody. You guys are crazy. <laughs> we didn't know what they were talking about. So I, my assumption was I didn't even know that Yeshua was Jewish until after I accepted the Lord. Wow. Uh, and I was blown away, and a lot of Jewish people don't know that because everything is presented in such a foreign context. It's sort of like when they, when Joseph's brothers came in and didn't recognize him because he was dressed like an Egyptian, he spoke through an interpreter. The last place they expected to find him was the second most powerful man in the world. Yeah. And uh, and here they didn't even recognize him. And so in a lot of ways, Yeshua as a brother has been disguised by a lot of the cultural developments that have happened over time. Some with good reason, some were parables that later became, uh, you know, locked in stone. Um, they were trying to reach the pagan world, and so they, uh, they used some of the elements that were there, took the, the fertility goddess and talked about eternal life and, and, and the miraculous birth and uh, death and resurrection. Uh, but they were using them more as illustrations, and later... They, when they talked about the idea in Judaism of, of, of removing yourself from the pagan world, when Constantine came into power and decided to basically have a wardrobe change for Rome and became kind of Christian in the way that they presented themselves, they took the same mindset and said, if you do anything Jewish, you are going back to the former gods. 
Well, it made no sense because it was the foundation of everything that uh, Christianity was based on. But when you remove the foundation, people have no reference for its original source. And so it takes on a whole lot of different cultural directions that happen with that. And so I had no reference for that. And I, I, to keep it short, I had a real power encounter with God. I mean, uh, I was, um, <laughs> I mean, I had an experience where uh, the evangelist was talking, and I said, uh, I know it's me. And he says, you know who you are? I said, yeah, but I can't go up. He says, you can come up. I said, is he reading my mind? He says, I'm not a mind reader. I'm just saying what God said. And, and I had this incredible stirring inside. And yeah, it was, I mean, I was, I thought they plugged me into a wall socket somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was being electrocuted, it seemed like, and there were no wires. And uh, I was speaking this strange language, and I was hearing the words, two or three words before I would say it, and it turned out I thought it was an angel and I had been electrocuted and died. I didn't know what to make of it. But what, what happened was somebody was giving a prophecy in the service, and everything they said in tongues and in English, I was saying quietly under my breath, two or three words ahead of them, word for word. And so it was a very, there were a lot of very powerful demonstrations for me. But I also found that later on when I had to go to, um, <laughs> when I had to go to five different rabbis and psychiatrists and psychologists, that's what my mom had me do. Uh, it was really rather amazing. I, I realized one time, and this is important, it goes to something that Steve was saying before, uh, a little bit, and that is with the history. Uh, when I was there, everything was fine with all the different rabbis I spoke with. When I went to my old conservative cantor and the rabbi of the Orthodox synagogue, they kind of double teamed me. They were talking about pogroms, inquisitions, Holocaust, all these things done in the name of Christ. And they said, What well, your ancestors died not to receive, you're accepting voluntarily. Doesn't that bother you? And I didn't show it outwardly, but inside I was just flayed open inside. I, I, I didn't know what to do. And I remember going home, and I pulled out my bar mitzvah Bible, and I said, God, I don't know who's right. I don't know if pastors are lying to me. I don't know if rabbis are lying to me. I said, but if you can't show me in here, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I can't tell you any specific verses, but I discovered that while experiences are good, they're good for a season mm-hmm. as an intro. Right. That's right. But getting into the Word of God was the real foundation that transformed everything in my life. And, um, and you know, that's, that's, that's in a nutshell. I mean, that's, that's a short version of it. Uh, but, uh, but later, I got involved with, um, with Messianic Jewish congregations, thinking I was the only Jew that believed this way. And finding out that every Jew that I meet who does believe in Yeshua as a Messiah also thought they were the only one because we never, you never saw it. But there is a movement happening around the world with Messianic synagogues and uh, thousands and thousands of Jewish people coming to know the Messiah. And part of it is putting the message of Yeshua back into the original Jewish context. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in, you know, seeing the truth of Yeshua through Jewish eyes, as we say. And what that does is it not only brings it into a context that Jewish people can understand, because like I said, I I give you one other example too. It's funny. You know, when people talk about the the last supper, Mm -hmm. you know what I thought the last supper was? I didn't know anything having to do with Passover. 
I knew that this guy gets killed at the end, <laughs> executed. And I thought it was the convict's last meal. Final meal, okay. Yeah. They called it the Last Supper. So I had no reference to anything be- beyond that. It's sort of like if you've ever watched Rugrats, <laughs> where they try to figure out what they th- or, or you know, uh, uh, you know what they're saying, and, and they, they don't understand. I didn't understand, and there's no reference to really make that connection. And so it was afterwards that I discovered that, and uh, you know, and, and we we deal with people all the time who say. Oh, you can't believe in you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus. I said, Well, who told you that? And he said, Well, everybody knows that. I said, Well, how do you know that? Did you study it? No. You're brainwashed too, they tell me. And I said, Okay, I'm brainwashed. So it cost me something, it cost you nothing. And you say that you if it was if he was the Messiah, the rabbis would have told you. So you believe it because the rabbis told you and not because I said, Who's brainwashed? If you haven't thought for yourself, it cost me something, cost you nothing. I was where you're at. You've never been where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I had an experience that moved me away from a misconception to understanding the reality of who Yeshua really was. And I believe that in many ways, the uh, things are coming full circle. And in the church world, people are more and more looking to understand the foundations, uh, the Jewish foundations of the faith. And in so doing, a a real great measure of a deeper intimacy and understanding of who Yeshua is. There's, there's so many examples that people quote uh, from the Bible and give the moral of the story and miss the whole point of it from a Torah standpoint That's right. and not understanding the context. And so instead of shooting from the hip, people need to understand the, uh, the Torah foundation of it. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to go out and do every detail of Torah to make that happen. But understanding the foundation determines what the structure is going to look like that's growing up on top of it. Yeah, that's so, very good. All right, we have, I don't want to. I, I, I could talk forever. You probably that's all right. That that's all right, Rabbi. Is that we enough got, of a testimony. That sounds great. That was fantastic. <laughs> okay. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and 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 speak more about this. When we come back, here's my question for you, and you probably can talk the rest of the show. What's the biggest thing the Christian church is missing today about Judaism? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about that when we come. It used to be, way when I was younger, it was called Judeo-Christian thought. Now it's just called Christian thought all the time. And I keep telling people, you're missing a lot when you take the Judeo out. Understand, you take Jesus out, we disappear. The Jews are still there. We'll be back with more here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, Billy's in the studio, Steve's in the studio, Scott, pastor of Agape Church, is here as well, and we've got a rabbi in our midst, a messianic rabbi, that is a Jewish believer in Christ, which is, uh, I always get excited about that, I don't know why, why is that, Rabbi, why is it that Christians get excited when we hear Jewish people are believers too? Because in history, it seems so rare to them to see it, but not realizing that it just doesn't happen by wishful thinking or even just by prayer, but by actions. And sometimes the things that have happened have distanced people Mm -hmm. from hearing the message. And I think that one of the best things that the 
uh, church can do is to embrace and understand the Jewish foundation of the faith. Uh, in doing that, and we see more and more people understanding that because, um, like I said, there are a lot of things that that get lost in translation. Uh, for instance, I, I give you a couple quick examples. Um, you know uh, the garden experience where Yeshua is in the garden and he says, uh, if it's possible let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will but yours be done. When we hear that, we say, you hear people say, even Jesus was trying to get out of going to the cross. Mm-hmm. He said, not my will but yours be done. And that's usually what you hear in a lot of churches, right? Right. The reality of it is coming from a... Jewish standpoint. The cup of death is any time death is nearby. The forensic evidence shows that it's the one time in the scripture where you find Yeshua asking people to pray for him. Something's unusual going on. You see also drops of blood in his sweat. The stress level was so intense that he was feeling the cup of death in the garden. The question, he had just rebuked Peter for even suggesting that he wouldn't have to go to the execution stake. So he said to him, in fact, get behind me, Satan. So here he never doubted and questioned it. What it was was wondering if the cup of death he felt in the garden, if he was going to make it out of the garden. And at that point, he says, if it's, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And immediately the cup is lifted and he goes forward to carry out what he was doing. When he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, he was not saying, if I don't have to go to the cross, I'd like to get out of it, but I'll follow through if I have to. He, he, he was never thinking that way. What he was looking at was, if it's your will for me to die in the garden and not make it to the execution stake, your will be done. Immediately, immediately it lifts, and he goes forward. Uh, there are, there, when, the problem with it is that when people read that, the shallow reading of it, when people see that, they say, well, you know, Jesus even tried to get out of going to the cross, and, and I'm no Jesus, so, <laughs> hey, what am I going to say? You know, uh, I'll do the best I can. And, and there's no sense of what was really accomplished, you know, or, or one of my favorite things is, as you mentioned before, at Sukkot, uh, with the woman caught in adultery. The way most people look at that from a, not through Jewish eyes, but trying to figure out on the fly what it means is they see this woman caught in an act of adultery, and they come and they say, Moses said she should be stoned, what do you say? And they were trying to trap him mm-hmm. with Torah. What happens is, he says, we're the witnesses. We caught her in the very act. So everybody knows you have to have two or three witnesses to do this. And then he says, as he's writing in the dirt, you ever people try to figure out, what's he writing in the dirt? He's writing in the names of their sins. He's right. Do you ever try to read dirt? You can't really read people writing in dirt. I believe he was just not making eye contact. And then he says, whoever was without sin cast the first stone. Well, he's not saying if you ever sinned in your whole life. And you hear people say, how can you judge somebody else if you yourself are a sinner? Or you say, the moral of the story is love is more important than law. So he gave her mercy and let her go. You hear these stories, but the truth was they were trying to trap him with Torah. All right. He I need turns you. around. Rabbi, I need you to hold. Hey, am I, I talking too long? Yeah, we got to go to the news. We'll be back. Sorry. <laughs> What's the matter with this world? 
It looks like trouble everywhere. No one tries to get along, and no one seems to even care. Oh, people say that they want change, but what they really mean is change the other guy. And I can't seem to change anybody, no matter how hard I try. No, I can't seem to change anybody. So Lord, just come and change me. Oh Lord, change me from the inside out. Take away. That is Rabbi Jan Rosenberg. He used to remember that. He used to play rock and roll. He was a rock and roll player. <laughs> what 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 instrument did you play, Rabbi? Uh, I played the radio. I played the cassette player. I, I don't play instruments. I, I hear it in my head, and uh, although on that particular song, I, I do whistle. Oh, uh, but, and I played the shofar. Uh, uh, we won't have a, uh, a, a you know a, a duel for uh, you know shofar to shofar there, two yeah. wooden shofars, but with Steve. But no, we we. Um, but no, it's it's more these these come out of my. Uh, out of my quiet time and out of uh, my relationship with the Lord. It just, uh, he says, make music and melody in your heart to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something uh, about that, hearing uh, his melody and his song for our hearts. Well, what Um, I thought was interesting, as you just said in that song, I try to change other people, but nobody is changing, so Lord, change me. I think that is insightful. Mm. Well, especially if you consider, you know, even not just in the religious circles, but you look at the political spectrum. And one of the things that happens, and sadly, I think believers are getting sucked into uh, acting the way the rest of the world does. Mm -hmm. And what happens is we think that we can convince by argument and by debate Usually, it just reinforces whoever's position the other people hold, and they say, "Yeah, you did a great job. You really won this one." And this idea of 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 not really communicating but talking past each other is something people think that if you share, you have to tell them everything you know and tell them why they need to believe. But what we really want to do is have questions and be able to allow people to come to to self discovery on a lot of these things. That's why I mentioned before, just to finish up that thing before about the woman caught adultery, people repeat that all the time saying, you know, love is more important than law. And how can you judge somebody if you yourself are, 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 you know, are a sinner. And what all he was doing when he was writing in the dirt, all he was doing was not making eye contact. When he said to them, whoever was without sin, cast the first stone. He didn't mean if you ever sinned in your life, According to the Torah, if somebody is found, first of all, people think it was vigilante. They didn't just stone somebody. They had to go through a trial. And if the witnesses were there, they had to hold firm to their testimony or there was no trial. So witnesses were not just saying we caught them. Witnesses had to testify. And if found guilty of adultery, do you know who is the first person that's supposed to throw the stone? The witness. The one who did it. The one who... A lot of people think it's spouse, but it's not. It's the witnesses. Mm-hmm. So when he says, whoever is without sin, if there's, he wasn't saying if you ever seen, he was saying, if there's not an ulterior motive or compromise, 
are you willing as witnesses, if found guilty, to cast the first stone? Mm-hmm. And so what he does, if, he, if you say it to somebody's face, they'll put their arms, they'll fold their arms and say, yeah, I'll do it, because they're on the spot. He gives them room to save face. He shows them love, and they walk away from the oldest to the youngest. He turns to her and says, woman, where are your accusers? There are none. Well, there's no case. He doesn't say go and know that every once in a while you'll have a, you know, an itch or something, and you gotta just, you know, uh, impulse, you know, try and use protection. Or he doesn't say that. He says go and sin no more. Don't do it again. He doesn't give love is more important than law. That's right. He shows compassionate love to the witnesses to give them room to save face. With her, he tells tough love and says, "Don't do it again. You may find yourself on trial and may not have." A situation where the witnesses walk away. And so it's, it, but when you look at that, it makes so much more sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it, we say love is more important than law. And imagine though, if you're a judge and you're up on the stage, I mean, on the stand and, and the guy says, uh, he committed all kinds of things. What do you have to say for yourself? He says, well, I did all those things. I murdered, I did arson, I did it all. But judge, did you ever sin in your life? And he says, well, you know, I, I did steal a pack of gum when I was six. All right, let him go. How can I judge? I mean, it makes no sense. Right. And yet we repeat these things over and over again. And I think there's a lot of things. We need to challenge our own assumptions. I, I think, too, on that thing about wanting to change everybody, uh, I, I, one, of the, one of the just the silly thing that I, I think about is, uh, you know, when somebody says, I challenge you to a duel and they slap you with the with the uh, the glove. Uh, glove. The glove, yeah. It says, choose your weapons. And he says, I choose pistols. And he says, well, I, I'm really not good with pistols. Can we do swords? Well, why do you give the other person the choice of weapon? It's the dumbest question a person could ever ask. You, you go with what's strong for you. You say, let's cut the cards, you know, or something. But people do that. And I think what happens is we are subject to the possibility of fighting back the enemy with weapons that are carnal, with weapons that do, well, they did to me, so I'll do to them. But what does he say in Galatians? He says, uh, he says, if you find someone overtaken at a fault, you who are spiritual, uh, if you went by what people say, that you who are spiritual, get all the evidence you can, nail them with it, and get rid of them, and put them on the spot, and really destroy them. That's what it seems like people want to do. Mm-hmm. But he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. It's this heart to restore. So if you're talking to somebody and they are angry in your face and you get angry back in their face, you've not shown them anything that's going to change their mind because they don't know of anything else. And, and yet what you guys said, the, the camaraderie that you guys have there is because he says, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And I think that we need to be in a position to show that. And if anything, you know, just on a, a quick Old Testament, New Testament thing, you've heard people say, as pretty much gospel fact, they'll say uh, that God in the Old Testament is a God of judgment, and mm-hmm. in the New Testament is a God of love. Yep. Well, that again is a silly concept, because everything in the Hebrew Scriptures is pointing to reconciling mankind mm-hmm. back to himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. of restoring and all of that. Um, I mean, these are the things that, whether Jewish or not Jewish, people need to understand um, if we're going to see a transformation take place in our in our nation and in our world. 
he doesn't say get the politicians to agree with you. He says if my people who are called by my name will humble mm-hmm. themselves yeah. and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Well, the wicked ways may not be all of the list of sins. It may just be that I'm doing it my way instead of God's way. And when we turn from that, he says that's when he will hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal our land. Uh, everything he says, we, you talk about the high holidays. One of the passages is read during that time is Deuteronomy 30, one of my favorite love chapters in the Bible. People say, how do you get love chapters out of Deuteronomy? It's there. He says, when you go into the land and you do all the things and you go astray and you find yourself in a foreign land and you come to your sense and say, what should I do? He says, do exactly what I'm telling you today and I will immediately turn your exile. If you go to the end of the sky, I will go there and get you. That to me is an amazing love that says, while we were yet rebels, Messiah died for us. It's the same concept that's there. And when we relegate it to the idea that God was somehow judgmental and began to learn love through his son, <laughs> this is the whole point. So sometimes we have to reevaluate and challenge our own assumptions. And it doesn't mean you go around telling everybody that they're wrong for what they believe, but we have to analyze it through Jewish eyes to see what the context was. And what we find is that there is, as you said before about Judeo-Christian ethics or Judeo-Christian, it's because the foundation, Yeshua didn't come and bring a new law. No. He re-established and clarified the law that existed. And so, you know, and if anything, he says to love with the same love that I have loved you, so love one another. Um, We, you know, I have another song where I say... um, uh, uh, greater love is no man that he laid down his life for his friend, but you don't want to be inconvenienced for 20 minutes or even just 10. Think about it, then follow me. We have to put him first. It's through union with him that everything changes, not trying to force people to believe differently than they do. They have no reference to believe or hope anything else. Right. Hey, Rabbi Jen, this is Steve. Um, we're getting ready to take a break, but what I, you, you've kind of started to head down this path, but one of the things I've always appreciated, and, and I will openly admit on air that I was less than a great disciple of yours with regards to the thing I admired the most about you, and that is in the video that you sent, which was Save Our Planet, Reduce Vitriolic Emissions. One of the things I always respected of how you, you, didn't, you never toler- tolerated uh, that kind of negative speech, uh, wouldn't involve in it, um, and uh, I would, maybe when we come back, if you could elaborate more about how important it is that we control the things that we say, how we address our brothers or sisters, or obviously you made a reference in the political realm, but we know that's not going to change. What's going to change is among ourselves. So maybe if you could talk a little bit more yeah. about that, because I've always respected that and often reference how much I appreciated how you carried yourself with regards to not involving or allowing that kind of stuff to go on. All right. 14 minutes till four, a break, and we'll come back and... Finish up with the rabbi here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, we've got 10 minutes remaining. So, Rabbi, the red light is blinking at us, so just to let you know. But I'm going to let you pick it All up right. where we left off with uh, what Steve had to say. Yes. Uh, one of the things, I, ha- I have a song that I do. It's actually a music video uh, on YouTube also called Save Our Planet, Reduce Vitriolic Emissions. Uh, and it's based on the idea that's my that's my environmental uh, uh, song, but it isn't smokestacks or car exhausts 
that are causing the biggest problem. What comes out of our mouth is the biggest pollutant that we have to deal with. Amen. And one of the things, there's a term in Hebrew called uh, Lashon Hara. It's the evil tongue. And it's different than slander. Slander is when you tell lies about people. But Lashon Hara is, even if it's true, the question is, why do you want to say it? And so if you undermine somebody's character, uh, or if you uh, undermine it through character assassination or those things, we, we are actually doing, when Yeshua said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, when you have anger in your heart towards somebody, it sets in motion something that actually I found out later after I had done the, the video and the song, is that um, <laughs> there's actually a physiological effect that happens to the hippocampus. It's where all logic and processed thinking goes through. And when you're angry or filled with hatred or fear, it shrinks and your ability to process disappears. And so when the song starts off, uh, when it says, um, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I forgot my own song now. Uh, uh, when anger levels rise, sound reason disappears. Save our planet, reduce vitriolic emissions. Uh, the idea of when we get angry, we close off our ability to actually respond. So if somebody, the thing that we have to remember, if somebody is able to, uh, to trigger or push our button and we react back, it's afterwards we say, ah, oh, I don't know why I said that, I shouldn't have said that. You can't get it back. And so what, we, what you want to do is always think in terms of uh, presenting what is going to be for the purpose of restoring. When you think about this, you, you know, you, I, I look at things like the woman, the girl in Sweden who, uh, was, uh, who was speaking very passionately about what's happened here. And I looked at it and I thought, my gosh, my heart goes out to her. She is not an enemy. She has been taught something mm -hmm. that has been wrong. And it's, 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 it's like child uh, brutality. I mean, it's like child abuse. Uh, if they don't know that there's hope, I'll give you one strange example, okay, about how this works, too. When we look at people, we have to hear the question of their heart. I had a woman come up to me one time, found that I was a believer, and she says, she said, so, you think I'm going to hell because I'm gay? And I, my answer, you know, a lot of people would come back with answering the question of the head and say, well, it's an abomination before God, and, and, and you go on and on, right? My answer to her, I felt was from the Lord. I said, oh, no, you can go to hell for a lot less than that. In fact, <laughs> all of us were going there, but God made a provision that none of us have to. Amen. She said, what? And what happens is when you tell someone it's an abomination, they already understand, but they have no sense of hope or any other possible way out of it. So they embrace their lifestyle because they're told by some that this is you and don't let anybody take it away from you. Right. But when you say to them, we're all in the same boat, there are all kinds of things and we're all on their way, but God made a provision. I'm giving them a message of hope at that moment that says, we're all in the same boat. You're not any worse than I am, but God made a provision. We don't have to be lost. We can experience his love. And I think if we approach people that way, uh, it says um, in, in Corinthians, I wish people would look at that as every day as a definition instead of just love. And it still talks about what feels good. But he says, it takes no account of the evil done to it, pays no attention to a suffered wrong. Hopes are uh, 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 
uh, are faithless under all circumstances, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Take, uh, I mean, when you look at all of those elements, uh, does not insist on its own rights or its own way, isn't everything in the world doing that? And I'll tell you one other thing, too. I remember at my daughter's congregation, they asked the question in Genesis, and this goes also to looking at context. They said, if God created us in his image and after his likeness, why are people so horrible? And they went around the room over and over, and I finally I asked, I said, can I say something? And I said, you do realize there were two image makers in the garden? <coughs> God created us in his image, and the adversary was there, and the response that they had saying, the woman you gave me, that put the blame on him, on her, and on God. The woman, I was tricked by the, by the serpent. What happens is, if, and if people want a model, everyday model, to know where we stand with the Lord, who we're replicating, and who we're giving image of, if all of our focus is on accusation or building a case against somebody, we are taking the image of the accuser of the brethren mm-hmm. instead of the image that we were created in that looks to always restore, always bring healing, always bring uh, a, a word of encouragement and a word of hope and letting them know that God loves them. I had somebody yelling the other day. They were chanting all kinds of things. <laughs> and I said, hey, I've got a chant for you. And they looked at me. I said, I love you. I love you. I love you. And they didn't know what to do. <laughs> That's funny. Because, you see, we say, well, I hate you too. You know, I, it, We miss the whole point. We get sucked into, like Yeshua didn't get sucked into being redirected, he redirected them back to what's true. Yeah. And that's why, like what Steve said before, we need to go with what's true, what's honest, what's pure. We need to think on these things because whatever we think on is what's going to come out of our mouth. Yeah. Anyway, that's good. very good. I hope I'm not just preaching here too much. No, no, you're no, doing fine. Uh, you're, doing, you're doing great. We've got about three minutes left. Let me ask this. There's a piece of scripture that's used now in our culture uh, totally meaning something that it did not mean in scripture and that is judge not least you be you be judged uh this is this is thrown at people all the time now if if you try to point out that there's there's something wrong in the world they'll say now you shouldn't be judging you shouldn't be judging and you know i have to say that I disagree with that. I think we're supposed to be a people that does judge. Are we not? Yes, but I will tell you one caveat to think about. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 5 when they had the sexual immorality that was going on and, and he was coming and, and he was questioning about how they were acting and, and such in there. Paul said, it's not my business to judge outsiders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And what's interesting is we take the bait and talk to people whose whole uh, mandate is whatever their lifestyle is. They have no reference to understand. And when we say the Bible says, they don't believe the Bible. Doesn't matter. What we have to do is show them love and hope beyond where they are. And that's what they did. That's how we came to the Lord. We didn't. They didn't say, "All right, if you stop doing all this stuff." you will be able to come to God. We came to God because we experienced the fact that he was loving us first, and that unconditional love broke down the wall, and we knew 
that if we went to the end of the sky, he would go there and get us. And I think that if he says that we're to love the way he loved us, then we have to love those who despitefully use us. We have to love them. It doesn't mean we accept what they say, right. but we are judging the the lifestyle, the context, but we're not judging them. Right. It's not what we're really here to do. We're, we're looking to show them an avenue that they've not seen before, a side that they haven't seen before. That's why I say with that woman, if I had gone the path that she was expecting me to, it was it, it was just the same in her mind, bigoted view against her, and they're hateful, and that's what Christians are. Yep. And when I answered her in a way that didn't make her sin to be the worst sin, but that put us all in the same boat when we, we disobey and don't follow him, but then let him know that he made a provision so we don't have to, that may be the first time that she heard somebody respond to her with a word of encouragement that said, wherever you're at, God wants it to be better for you. Amen. He's made a provision for us to be restored more than you even know how much you're loved. And I think that that's the message we have to actually uh, bring to people uh, and not be sucked into tit-for-tat kind of thing, you know, like, Amen. well, you said this, and that. I, that's what kids do. Yeah. You know? right. You're my right. best friend now. Now you're not my best friend. You're I'm my best friend. You're not my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ra- all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Amen. Rabbi, we are out of time. I want to thank Steve for having uh, getting in touch with you and having you on. You've been fantastic. We appreciate it. We'd like to do this in the future. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Rabbi. We'll All talk right, to you later, you. Rabbi. Thank you very much. If anybody wants to see my music or something, go to RabbiJan.com. Uh, okay. All right, <laughs> RabbiJan.com. Here we go. Take a break. News is next. Please, Casey, help us. Yeah, thank you for bringing uh, the rabbi on. Was his yeah, Jan, that uh, was Rosenberg. very RabbiJan.com yep. is yep. where you can find him on the internet. Be um, I want to listen to him. And you guys, Michael Brown, is that right? Yeah, Michael Brown. Yep. That's coming November third. That's correct. To Agape, probably somebody. I already told my wife. You know. I'm coming over Great. to the service for that. Yeah, too. I love anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm all look. When I went to seminary, what were the classes I loved? Counseling and apologetics. Oh, yeah. really? Well, so I will love. He is apologetics extraordinaire. Him yeah. speak. If yeah. you Google and watch some of his debates, pick a category. Uh, it will just it'll melt your brain, man. He's it's just yeah. pick a topic. Whether he's debating non-believing rabbis or whether he's uh, debating atheists or whoever, uh, he's a very smart man. Yeah. 
<laughs> even even when my brain was working right, my brain did not work the way that man <laughs> does. So, you guys want to take on an interesting, I mean, really interesting question? Mm-hmm. Sure. You sure. ready? That's what we're here All for. All right. So, what's your best advice for a married couple <laughs> who really don't like each other anymore? There is no biblical reason for a divorce. I won't say that. But do they stay miserable and married, or should they walk away? There have been counselors, pastoral and secular intercessions and interventions. Mm-hmm. This is a question from somebody in Conway. Okay. And they ask about this. Now, I have my own answer, but I'm not going to give it. I'm yeah. going to turn it over to you guys. I would go back to the rabbi's song um, where we are praying for God to change the other person instead right. of changing us. Right. This is when I know that this that the Holy Spirit is working because that's exactly what was in my mind. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I, I believe that... <laughs> I don't know if I could say this the way I normally say it, but if we are truly calling ourselves Christians and we are truly seeking after the heart of God and truly seeking to love people as we're supposed to, then that means that virtually outside of some really different personalities that nearly every man and every woman that names the name of Christ could in some way be have a relationship uh, unless there's just something that is just something that is very difficult to overcome. But personalities and character and walking in the way of the Lord should not be one of those. And so I would encourage the people to find out what um, what changed, um, who changed. And But you always ask the question first to yourself. Yeah, how did have, I change? How did I change? What's different here? Why don't I feel the same way that I used to? Um and and then also, how are they living their lives? Are they yep. in pursuit of the Lord together? Uh, or has one walked away from the pursuit of the Lord? But you really got to ask yourself before you even begin to look at the other person and go, why is it that I don't have this connection any, any longer? And if you're yep. truly seeking the best and, and seeking to be the best that the Lord has for you, then you might be surprised how differently they look at you if you start yeah, walking yeah. the way God said to walk. Yeah, so I think I've got two things to say there. Number one, um, you only gave us two options for the potential future, and that was to continue living together miserably or to walk away from one another. Mm -hmm. And I think the third option that is not listed there is probably the one you should be seeking, which is to get rid of the misery part of that and continue walking together. Um, And I've I've done some counseling over the years, and I've I've talked to young married couples about how to have a long and healthy marriage. Um, And the thing, the piece of advice that I always give is that you cannot focus on one another. Um, You must focus on Christ. Here's the deal. The closer you grow, always draw out a triangle on a piece of paper. And if you're on the right-hand side and your husband is on the left-hand side or vice versa, if Christ is at the top of that pyramid, at the top of that triangle, as you grow closer and closer to Christ, you by default grow closer and closer to one another as well. If you're both trying to be Christ-like, you're going to find yourself in unity one with the other. So um, it's it's got to be a pursuit of Christ. It's got to be a pursuit of Christ. It's got to be a pursuit of Christ. Well, that that question, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I bet you that... Uh, their walk with the Lord is not where it needs to be. Yeah. I would almost bet yeah. 
my well, life on it. I, I can yeah. sense some hopelessness hopelessness in that. Um, simply the the options that were given. I, I mean, we everyone sitting at this table has probably done this long enough. We we recognize those sorts of signs, but um, there's hope. There is hope. Yes, uh, and that hope is in Christ. So, I would I would just uh, go ahead and throw in there that um, um, if we look at this from a a standpoint of if we're looking at things hebraically here. Um, in America, um, love is a feeling, mm. and um, if I don't have that feeling anymore, then I must not be in love anymore. Um, but in a Hebraic framework, um, love is a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made a commitment here. Um, this is not a secular contract, but this is a spiritual covenant that's been made. And when you look at it from covenantially, um, it's it's something that is not just walk awayable from. And if, right. there, if there isn't a, a biblical reason for divorce, if that's not an option, then you really only have one other option, and that is to, as the other gentlemen were saying, you have to focus on the Messiah, move towards him, and realize I've made a, I have made a, a covenant with this person. I've made a vow before God for better, for worse. This is worse, but in that vow, I still made a commitment to be in this relationship, so therefore I'm committed to it. And then we must find a way in the midst of this mess to allow Messiah to part the waters, divide the Red Sea again, um, bring the, the pillar of fire when it's cold in our relationship, bring the, the cloud when it gets too hot in this relationship, and allow him to be the center focus of that. Um, but um, just to nitpick at each other is not going to fix the problem. Um, but I think you have to approach it, okay, what is a marriage? It is a covenant. And then from that point, you keep moving it forward. And the more you move forward in that, you find yourself growing up along that pyramid, as Billy was saying, and you find yourself um, back together again. But guess what? It takes two to make this happen. Yeah, it does. Um, and uh, it can't just be a one-sided uh, one-sided thing. And I would encourage the people who are asking this question, uh, find some spiritual counsel. Get, get a spiritual counselor in your life that can help you walk this and be patient. It's not mm-hmm. going to happen overnight. If it took 10 years to get here, it's not going to get fixed in one night unless you have a supernatural divine intervention from God. Otherwise, it's going to be – it took you 10 years to walk in the middle of this forest. It's going to take you a while to walk out of it mm-hmm. and uh, be patient and continue that knowing that you're in the will of God. Yeah. My my pastor at uh, New Life Church has a great saying. He likes to say, if you think everybody else has a problem but you don't have a problem, that's your problem. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Everybody, Everybody has a problem. That's right. That's keep, right. Keep that in mind. This is a, a question for Billy Miller. Oh, oh. wow. A very it's, pointed wow. question to Uh-oh. you. Uh-oh. Is it about a shirt? No. He oh. says, <laughs> it, it, he says uh, are you ever going to answer my question about oh. aliens? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. So with that, what is, let's he just about? What is he talking about? Well, I mean, look <laughs> at him. I'm not sure if he's from here. <laughs> it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, right? Right? It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Although right. this happens to be one of my favorite shirts, and I wear it year-round. So, and what, uh, is, what did Russ call you when he saw you today? Pepto-bismol. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> He called him Pepto, and I said, what? <laughs> Pepto, Pepto, yeah. Uh, how about we just go with a simple no and move forward? <laughs> so, uh, go ahead. Um, so the question has, 
I have a friend who has sent uh, more than once now going, do you guys believe in aliens or what is your opinion on aliens? And we've dodged that question several times very deftly. Uh, but, yes, I, I'll, I will jump into that, I suppose. I'll follow on that grenade. Um do I believe that there? Do I believe that there is life beyond Earth? Absolutely, um, God exists beyond Earth, so um, that's a no-brainer for me. Uh, it, do I believe in little green men from Mars? No, I do not believe in little green men from Mars. Um, do you believe I will say the moon is made of cheese? I do not believe. Oh, okay, but if it was, it would be tasty, old <laughs> but tasty. Um, so. Uh, Here's the deal. Um, scripture is clear that Christ died for all who need redemption, and my assumption would be that if God created beings elsewhere, they would need redemption as well. So that might be hard to work out theologically uh, if they weren't here. Um, secondarily, if there are beings out there, they too were created uh, at the will and pleasure of God uh, to serve whatever purpose he has for them. So that that doesn't really bother me much. What I will say is that um, this world has been fed this idea constantly of aliens, 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 life from outside of this planet to the point that whether we whether we truly believe that there's life off this planet, we've got this thought in the back of our head because um, we've been force-fed it so much. And I believe it's part of our enemy's end-time plan. Um, I've told – I've had conversations with Steve that if an alien ship um, were to land on the White House tomorrow – and declare that all Christians had just misunderstood their Bibles and that really aliens seeded life on this planet, um, about 90% of Christianity would die overnight. I truly believe that. Um, I, I believe it is, um, I believe that what has been happening since the mid-60s um, is really part of our enemy's end-time plan for the ultimate deception that needs to come before the Lord returns. So how's that? Is that a nice, safe answer? <clears throat> But yeah. your friend will tell you if it was a good answer or not. Yeah, yeah. probably so. I'll be getting well, in the Well, I don't know. I was listening to a um, a guy that was on a radio program, and he talked for about an hour. He he wrote a book about this, and he, he went into detail about how um, like 95% of all of the sightings have always been able to be explained. Sure. But then he went into detail over history how um, these things that were cited throughout history seem to be – um, connected to with the things that were visibly flying at that time. And so, like, for example, in, in the late 1800s, when people said they saw UFOs, they said they looked like balloons. Well, right. then all of a sudden we get planted in our head flying saucers, and now when we see things, they're flying saucers, products of the mind. However, what he did say was there's this 5% that is unexplainable, and it's what we don't know. Right. And, and, I, and I tend to lean towards his views, interpretation, and what he said was, the Bible doesn't address other worlds. The Bible addresses that God created this world and the universe expand from this place and redemption came to redeem mankind, not others. Right. And that the manifestations and that what we're seeing are the demonic. And when you see these the stories of people coming back who have said that they've been caught up and snatched and all this kind of stuff, they tend to mimic some of the things that same people have demonic things happen. Absolutely. So I think there's a mimicking that goes on here. And I do think the culture, because we've been programmed for since uh, um, Orson Welles, right, yeah. to, to think this way. Um, and, and so much so in our culture, um, just in our own modern day. That's yeah. all I got. And, and I, I will, you, you made a statement about the 5% that couldn't be explained. Uh, and I, I will remind everyone that uh, UFO, unidentified flying right. object, does not necessarily mean alien. 
Um, There are lots of objects that our government flies around that the vast majority of us would not be able to identify. That's the reason we have top secret programs. So um, simply because there are 5% out there that cannot be identified doesn't really mean much. Along that that line, the SR-71 was developed in the 50s. When people were driving 57 Chevys, the government was designing something that flew over 3,000 miles an hour. And in the 70s, they were designing the B-1 and the B-2. So what do they have flying yep. around today? And we even the stuff no that I admit today is Stuff that they've re-engineered, reverse-engineered yeah. out of Area 51. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of people who believe that. And there's a, here, here's my whole thought about this. And people think I'm making fun. In a sense, I do. But in a sense, I think I can be serious about this. We're supposedly being visited by beings from another galaxy who can travel well above the speed of light, who come to our planet, and what do they do? They draw people up off of our surface in a beam of light and give them an anal probe. <laughs> I don't get it. Right. I, I don't. Right. And they take them out of the nearest uh, you know, trailer park. Mm. I'm just saying... Don't buy it, folks. Right. I just don't buy it. Yeah. Thanks for the visual, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. But, but now, it's seriously, if you're going to snatch people, you don't take them out of trailer parks because nobody's going to believe that, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying that feeds into the conspiracy. Sure, you would have to take them from there because nobody will believe them. Come on. And I would right. just encourage people who are who are caught up in this. We should focus on what we know yeah. right? instead of spending 80% of our time on that which we don't know. So much of what we do know is edifying and upbuilding right, and encouraging right. and life-changing. Amen. Going back to what the rabbi said. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and if it, I think a lot of people are drawn to that because they, it is their nature to want to pursue mysteries. Um, there, there's this thought within Hebrew culture that it was the pleasure of God to hide mysteries in the Word of God, and it is the pleasure of kings and priests to seek out those mysteries. Mm. So, you know what, if you if you have a, a mind that needs to seek out mysteries, turn your attention to Scripture. There's a bunch of them in there. Well, here's the key. Why is it, well, I want to believe in something bigger than myself well, than believe go. in God. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. God is it's infinitely big much there bigger you than you are. Yeah. But I can't believe in a God. Yeah. But you can believe in a, you know, a guy <laughs> with a weird body and big eyes. So give me a break. I know. You know, that's just human nature. That's a, that's the heart of man. Mm-hmm. Believe anything, anything else God, than God. God. Yeah. Unbelievable. All right, my friend. We dealt with your question. There you go. We've talked about it. Let's take a break. Come back. What is hell really? There's a good one. Oh, no. I ain't going. Bible guys (laughs) coming up on that one when we return. All right. We like questions. We got a caller, and Patrick is going to join us here uh, from Cabot. Patrick, how are you? And welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. What's your question for the Bible guys? I really don't have a question, sir. I've just got a, a couple of comments I wanted to make. I caught the show kind of in the middle. I just got off work at four. But the covenant marriage, uh, people today think a marriage is more like a contract than it is a covenant. Mm-hmm. And me and my wife were in that same situation up until the early 2000s. And I was in the military and got stationed down in Louisiana, down at Bossier City. And we got involved in church down there at first, Bossier Baptist. Fred Lowry, Dr. Lowry, was one of the ones who brought the covenant marriage to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And he had written a book. It's called uh, The Covenant Marriage Staying Together Forever. Mm-hmm. And 
myself and my wife, we read that book, and we've been married 11 years, and we got remarried. Amen. Right, excellent. And Praise under God. that covenant, and the good thing about all this was I was able to witness when I was deployed, uh, I would have men and women come to me saying they were having problems with their marriage back home while we were deployed over there, and I took that book with me. Uh-huh. Amen. I, I, would let, I would let these people read that book, and I would make them go online and order the book for their spouse back home and have them read it. That way, whenever they got back from this deployment, they could start working on their marriage and get right. Excellent. Excellent. I had several, several people come up to me and say their marriage has never been better, and they were blessed that I was there with them. And I was like, nope, God blessed us. And Amen. Right, Amen. Right, right Amen. Fantastic, Patrick. Thanks Thank for you your call. Much. We appreciate that. We're always looking for something positive. Yeah. Yeah. Thank and you, that's Patrick, good. for serving your country. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's, One the, that's the key. You look at it as a covenant, and if you understand, and if you don't, un- if you're listening and you don't understand what a covenant is, that might be a part of the fundamental uh, yeah. problem. Yeah. And I would suggest getting uh, getting this book that uh, Patrick mentioned, uh, uh, or a book that will be teaching you about the uh, the covenant of marriage, what a covenant actually is. Amen. And if you want to know why we believe what we believe, God made a covenant with Israel. Amen. And that's why he can't do away with mm-hmm. his people. That's why he can't do away with his laws, because that, too, is a covenant. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to go down the path of studying covenants for your marriage, it might enlighten your view of the scriptures. Hey, Steve, well. after the break, can you discuss uh, covenant and divorce? And obviously God divorced his people, right? Can we talk about that on the side? Sure. All right. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about what does the Bible Say about having children. That's all coming up after the news. Back with you here <laughs> on the table. <laughs> I sure am glad you realized we were back when you realized we were back about two seconds at, later. Zach does a great job of, of keeping me out of trouble. He saw that I was still talking yes. and did not turn on my mic. Uh, there you go. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate it. Although, thank I, you, Zach. I talk, we I've already it. talked about that particular oh, thing before. Yeah, so it's nothing that is a But the last three seconds. Yeah, if we had come right into right that, that would have been a little And, and if you're watching on the camera, no, my, my shirt color didn't change. My face color <laughs> changed. That's uh, Okay, so, uh, so we had a couple of things here that we wanted to talk about. Let's go about first. We didn't deal with it. What is hell? Hmm. There's a lot of different concepts of hell. So, you know, what do you think is the true belief system for what is hell? Is it is it fire and brimstone? Is it, you know, forever and ever just, you know, eternal torment? I mean, what is it? Um, I'll just jump in since the other guys are being completely quiet. Um, oh, no, I just wanted to give you a chance because I'm ready to go. Okay. I, I would have to say that this one is, is what's laying right at the top of my current research pile. So oh, is it really? I'm, I'm going to keep my mouth shut and listen. So, well, well, Steve, you got something else you want to jump in? Well, first I will say that the vast majority of what we think about hell in, in most churches is wrong. Yeah. Um, and it, it comes from uh, like Dante's Inferno and that kind of stuff and the seven levels of hell. And somehow that the. Is that where the pitchforks and everything comes from? Well, the pitchfork and that uh, comes from pan, panius, the word for panic. And it's the half Greek, um, I'm sorry, half goat, half man, Greek okay. god, Greek deity. Um, and that's where that initial image came from. 
Um, but this idea that the adversary is somehow ruling the kingdom of hell and darkness is completely false. Yeah. Uh, it, the Bible says very clearly that that place is set aside for him and his angels. It was not designed for us. Now, what is it? It's described as um, it's described as darkness. It's described as the bottomless pit. It's disca- described <laughs> as the lake of fire, uh, hellfire, and brimstone, and all these different things. Um, but then there are some who don't even believe in its existence. Yeah. Uh, some believe it's just a metaphorical way of describing death, ceasing to exist, separation from God. Uh, however, there, there are other places that we have to look at in the book of Revelation. It talks about that the, uh, the beast and the false prophet will be thrown alive into the lake of fire where it says they will be tormented forever and ever. Um, so it's, it's hard to say, but those are the different things that it gives us to describe it. Because so, right. sometimes death is just described as being in the pit. Um, so we, we really don't know outside of those particular definitions. Sheol, which yeah. is a word in yeah. the Bible, mm-hmm. was basically a garbage pit that was continue, continuously burning. I mean, we've all seen a place right. where the fire always burns. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think about that in... Is there no worse place to be put mm-hmm. than in a trash dump that's always, always burning, burning because mm-hmm. you're not worth anything? Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah, that's this kind is of scary. I this think, is the reason it's still on the top of my um, research pile. Is for starters, we generally use a single word for what is it? Four different words in the Hebrew that we translate as hell. Um, so. For starters, we've got a, a bad understanding of, of just what we're talking about to begin with, and then we start trying to talk, define those things, it gets really muddy really fast. Yeah, there's there's several kind of compartments, if you will. Um, but one thing that comes to my mind is, um, and there are some people who would who would argue that this is, this is because it's a story or a parable, it can't be taken literally, but Jesus tells a story um, about Lazarus, and he tells a story where there's a there's two compartments they're divided by a gulf and uh one man he says he's he says hey the rich man says to Lazarus he can see him across the gulf and he mm-hmm. says you know he, he asks God he said would you send Lazarus back and have him uh take um what was he take his finger, finger you dip, dip it in water and, and he says for I am, my tongue. he says for I am tormented in these flames now some people might make the flames out to be some type of metaphorical thing or some type of hyperbole but you, you you equate I need water because of flame, so it, it would tend to think that there is some type of of, of physical torment that, that this man is uh, that this man is going through, and do we believe that that is uh, a, a literal thing? It it seems in that that it is talking about a literal thing. Uh, is it is it a forever thing, or does it move from that into a place of just outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Um, you know, a darkness where you can't even see your hand this close to your face. I mean, uh, I think it is a, a broad spectrum, but I do think that when Jesus tells that story, I believe the story he's telling is meant to be taken uh, in a very uh, in a very literal, literal way. way. Mm-hmm. But um, if that's the case, there is definitely some type of flame that causes a great um, pain that would cause you to weep and gnash your and, teeth and want water. So, yeah. um, but definitely a separation from God, yeah. and it is it is forever, um, and. You don't cease to exist. You are alive somewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's not in the presence of God. Bodily or just spiritually? Spiritually. Spiritually. Okay. Yeah. That's why yeah. I think they make a specific, John makes a specific 
point to say that these guys are thrown alive yeah. into the lake of fire. And a good point, because it is spiritual, these flames can't be just natural flames. Because mm-hmm. if it's a spiritual body, it's got to be some type of a spiritual yeah. flame. Yeah. And what does mm-hmm. a spiritual flame look like? Other Maybe the word flame is used just to mean torment or, or anguish. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. Robbie is on the phone. Bring Robbie up. Robbie's in Maumel. Robbie, how are you doing? Haven't heard from you in a while. You got a question for the Bible guys? Hey, I got a comment for you, Dave. I, yeah. I, I haven't been able to listen for a while. I didn't realize you guys were on TuneIn app, so I, I'm listening to you now on that. Okay. But, uh, you were you were saying earlier how to deal with people who say you know not to judge. It's wrong to judge. Well, when someone says that to me, that says that it's wrong to judge. I just say, well, that's a very judgmental statement. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, and I then, love you, brother. <laughs> and, and then we can move forward from there because we both realize that we both like to judge. Yeah, right. So we can go ahead and talk about what it is we're having judgment about. So it's just like when people say there's no right or wrong. I say, well, is that right? They're right. That's so, right. Yeah. There are no absolutes except so, for this statement. Yeah. So. I, I love the yeah, people. Hey, hey. Yeah. Go ahead. And uh, that Michael Brown, he's such a great debater. Uh, yes, he is. I, I listen to his uh, videos on uh, YouTube, and he does a great job when he debates uh, a rabbi, Tobias Singer. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Tobias, Tobias Singer usually just tears up Christians, and Michael Brown just tore yeah. Tobias up. With, and it was such a great thing to listen to. Yeah, well, Robbie, come Someone has a couple hours to listen to it. Robbie, come in, come to come see him at our church on that on the Sunday, the first Sunday of uh, November, 10 o'clock. You'd be welcome, man. Great. Have a good day. Thank All you. Right. We'll talk Thank to you, you later. Yeah, Robbie's a good guy. He he, uh, I think he's driving for Walmart now. All right, and mm, so he's out you. and about, and I don't know where he was. Did when he say he, just he was listening in. to you on an app? Is that what yeah, he said? Yeah, he's got there's apps now that yeah, you the can, tune in. You can what tune said. in. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know about that. Maybe. We got we've got an app for mm-hmm. for, for the radio station, so you can listen right. to the radio and station. And you can actually call you in directly from that app, That's right? That's correct. So you can. Or okay. you can send me, you know, you know, ugly statements. You know? Who would do I'll that just make Dave? it I'll just make it into a promo. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> one of the things that doesn't I bother me. Appreciated what the rabbi said about the judgment is that we're not supposed to be judging people outside the camp. Mm, so yeah. those who don't yeah. call themselves Christians, we're not supposed to go beat them over the head with the right. Bible. Because guess what? Right. They, they don't, don't care. Know. That's right. They don't care. You just give, well, them, the good, you give them the good news. And, and typically we are judging actions in a, in, a, in a hope to bring a brother into a correct standing. If you try to do that to a non-believer, they're not in correct standing. There's nothing you can do to change their actions that right. brings them into a correct standing anyway. You've got to deal with the spiritual problem that exists there to begin with. Right. So, um, yeah, we've we've taught for a long time that um, you there's no use trying to judge the world because the world has already condemned itself by its lack of belief. Right. Yeah. All, right. All right, Dave. We got to get a break in. Oh, I got. We got a break, and then we got children. We mm. talked about hell, so let's talk about children next. That's coming up here on the Dave Ellswick Show with the Bible Guys. I'm going to throw up. They they've got action figures <laughs> of Ocasio Cortez. What? Is that, if you give that well, to your children, you're leading them to hell. <laughs> the the, the reason they're able to pull that off is that the action figure's got as much intellect as she does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I hope I wasn't showing my true uh, colors there. Yeah, all right. So what does Pep the Bible talk. say about children? Don't all let right? them play with Cortez. <laughs> yeah. Does the Bible say it's wrong for a couple to have more children than they think they can afford? 
uh, no, uh, there isn't anything in the scripture that says that you shouldn't have more children than what you can um, afford. And I would say um, whenever, you know, a lot of couples say, well, we're going to we're going to have children once we get this established and this settled and this settled. If you wait until <laughs> you ready. feel that you've got everything <laughs> set, you will never have any children. Correct. And I, I'll say this for myself. When we had children, it was very rarely that I thought we could afford it. Right. But amazingly, every time God gave us a child, somehow my income just rose and Increased. met the occasion. It was always worked. It, yeah. was, it was amazing. The Bible says that children are a blessing of the Lord. And so um, uh, the, the Bible does not say anywhere that you can only, only have as much as you think you can afford. And, and um, I will say this is a concept that we really only see in first world countries, right? In Third world countries, children are a blessing in that you suddenly end up with more hands to help as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only when you become extremely affluent and you start looking at your luxury time mm-hmm. and your excess money and go, well, how much is this, you know, am I going to be able to go to the movies next week if we have another child? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really a concept that is completely foreign to the Bible um, because children are, you know, you're supposed to have that full quiver, right? They're, yeah. they're a blessing and you're supposed to have that full quiver. So that's a relatively new concept for man, period. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's a, it's a good question in the sense that I think a lot of people make decisions based off of those, yeah. off of those things um, that they're going to have just, I mean, if you look at Europe right now, um, where they're Europe, in trouble, they're in trouble and they're in trouble. Why? Because of the birth rate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of them will not be able to recover because of making decisions related to childbirth based upon their socioeconomic uh, um, position in life. And it has now doomed uh, Europe to extinction yep. within the next couple of generations. Yep. The, the, yep. Our descendants, maybe our, our grandchildren's grandchildren, will be raised in a world that will look absolutely nothing like this. I agree. Or Europe will no longer be Europe. It will be... It will, it will be an animal that we've never seen before. Yeah. It may be a califa. I'm yeah, just saying it may be a, it may be a, a Muslim country. Without, without a massive spiritual revival, that's exactly what's yeah. going to happen and that's what Pastor Scott was alluding to uh with Europe. Yeah. Uh the the growth rate and the reason that they're moving so many of the refugees from Syria there's a guy named uh, Walid Shobat mm-hmm. um, who said he was part of the people that they were sent over here in the 70s to infiltrate into the colleges, right. uh, to get into the culture, to marry um, American women, and to just begin to slowly change the culture. It is it is there in Europe, and without a massive revival, it will Europe, France, the the France, French culture, Spanish culture, all of that will be lost. In another generation, yeah, and it has to do directly to this. Not Spain may not even take a full generation at this point. Um, Without a shot fired, yeah, Spain is very much on the on the on the cusp of losing um, their culture to to a foreign invader that never. Had a young lady that went to uh, France uh, to Paris for three weeks in the summer, and when she came back, she goes, "I had no idea how many Muslims lived in Paris." And she was just shocked on how many she saw. And how many places were no-go zones. Yeah. 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 Mm. Not good. No. It's, it, it is not good. But that's what follows empty churches. Yeah. Absolutely. Just saying. Mm-hmm. That's what follows empty that's churches. Right. You know? Yep. Just, just the, the, way, the way that it is. All right. So we've got seven minutes left for this hour. 
Let me open up a can of worms for you <laughs> before we get to the hour. Let's talk about sex and marriage. Okay. I, I kind of referred this to the guys during a break. What do you do when, uh, you know, one of the uh, per people of a couple, all right, whether it's the man, whether it's the woman, uh, just doesn't want to have sex anymore, you know? Uh, what do you do about that? How do you deal with that? Most people, shoot, they don't even want to talk about that they argue, much less right. that they don't have sex. Right, right. Right. So, you know, they don't want to go to the pastor and sit down and say, you know, my wife is like a fish in bed or my husband, you know, stays up till midnight and I got to, you know, I go work in the morning, I go to bed, I got to get some sleep or whatever. So we never have sex. How do you deal with all that? It, well, it, I think it goes back to part of what we talked about earlier with um, uh, psychological issues and, and the mm -hmm. right counseling in the right environment. Uh, because what the vast majority of what you're going to hear this is from a guy's perspective. Yeah. It's going to be the, the main thing. But I also know um, something that's actually besides the, the wickedness of pornography. I know uh, wives that... Um, who have husbands that are becoming disassociated because they're so addicted to video games that mm -hmm. they spend four or five, six hours a day after work playing video games yeah. and they just, they don't have that interest. Um, and I, I mean, I don't have know what to say about that, but anyway, I don't right? know what to say about that. Right. Either. It just yeah. doesn't, just doesn't compute. Um, they but, actually have centers now where people are being treated for addiction to video, yeah, games. video game addiction. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the reason I say you got to find out about counseling, because there could be an issue that, that maybe she's never, confided in her husband that she was abused yeah. or maybe that's something that she's still dealing with. And so sex is very traumatic. Uh, and so that may be something that needs to be found out. If it's not something that extreme, um, then you, again, you got to find out if maybe there's a transitional period in life or some, sometimes that changes, but also back to the other question about marriage is, well, why, why, I guess it's time for the Bible guys. It is time for Bible guys in five minutes. <laughs> that is my alarm that lets me know. So the question then becomes, why is the lack of attraction there? Mm -hmm. What changed? Okay, it can't be so shallow. Is because we've gotten older, fatter, and bald, or whatever the case is. Hopefully, your marriage is not that shallow, right? Yeah. Right. That all of a sudden now I don't have because if you, if your attraction and your physical and sexual attraction was based on that, then you don't know what sex is for. Right. You don't know why right. God designed it, and it is only become physical, and that's why there is there there is not a connection anymore. But the Bible actually does address it. it Paul actually addresses address this in Corinthians, and he actually says, "You don't own your body, and that your your wife, uh, you or the husband owns her body, and she owns his body." Right. And actually says that do not forbid one another, and it because it deals with the temptation that could come because of those natural things that are not met, and so except and he says except for a time of prayer and fasting, do not deny one another. Right. But, okay, so we can whip out a Bible verse and say, hey, Bible says <laughs> this is what we're supposed to be doing. Well, yeah, that's really going to bring yeah. the mood up. Well, no, you got to mm -hmm. deal with the issue and find out why. It can why. be very delicate. It could be. Yeah, yeah. yeah it can be very delicate. Um, but if someone is experiencing a problem like this, they, they probably do need to go and speak to um, – you know, there's a reason why the Bible says that older women should teach younger women – there's a reason why you should have men counselors in your life. The, right. the Bible has community set up to walk through these things. We shouldn't right. have to run and seek a professional every time this happens. We should be able to go to people who have had 
long-standing, successful marriages and say, I've been having this issue. Can you help me through this? And older Did women. Did you nurses, run into this? You know, or yeah, whatever. right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they can counsel you and walk you uh, and walk you through it. And, uh, and um, I mean, there's there's hope in this. And, you know, again, goes back to you have to bring God into it. I mean, yeah. this, you know, if you're finding your 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 desire is, is waning towards your spouse, you know, ask the Lord, say, Why? Father, help me. Right. Uh, you know, because you don't want that to happen. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's a maybe there's a libido problem. Maybe there's a hormone imbalance. Maybe something is happening where you need to you need a healing from that. But uh, uh, God ordained it. It's a good thing. And he wants uh, he wants you to be able to be fulfilled in that. And if you're finding yourself falling low on it, seek uh, advice and counsel. But but please bring God into your into your uh, intimate relationship. It's it's holy. The Bible says that the marriage bed is undefiled. Yeah. Which means explain. Well, what does that mean? It means it is undefiled. Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I won't go as far as other people have mentioned in that. Here's what I think the context of that was. Okay. Uh, in the midst, and we've talked about this on the show many times, an agnostic idea that they viewed sex and marriage as a bad thing because yeah. what that did is it procreated fleshly things <clears throat> instead of spiritual things. And that they, um, they, and they viewed sex as an immoral thing uh, because it was of the flesh. And, and that's I, carried over into our even our current culture. Correct. And, and so it is not even uh, in the, um, remotely in the Jewish culture. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, I once heard a joke. It was a rabbi and a priest walking down the street, and the, ra- and the priest says, um, my religion forbids me from uh, getting married. And the rabbi says, my um, religion forbids me um, from eating pork. And he said to the priest, you really should try my religion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm with you. I so it, it's a natural, it's a holy thing, and it should be viewed as that. And if there's problems within it, you need to find out why. All right. We've got to break for news again. Then we'll come back for the final hour of this special four-hour show called The Bible Guys. It's been really an eye-opening uh, experience today. We've had a rabbi with us, a messianic rabbi, a believer in Jesus, who is a Jew. He's not a Christian. I know that's hard for a lot of people to get their hands around, but it's the truth. Jesus was a Jew, Mm -hmm. and when he came to preach, he came and brought it to the Jews. He didn't bring it immediately to the Gentiles. That was Paul's deal, all right? And Jesus had a big play in that as well, (laughs) all right? That's that whole Damascus thing you heard. All right, let's get the news. We'll be back for more here on the Dave Ellswick Show. you for the final hour of the Bible Guys today. If you just joined in and you said, yeah, I got to tune in, man. The Bible Guys are on the last hour. They've been here for three hours previously. (laughs) Mm -hmm, This has been our our big four-hour show. Now, I will not be here tomorrow. Uh, We'll have a best-of show 
for two to four, and then Joe and Duck will be here, and they've done this show enough that they can do it by themselves without me being here. So they'll be live in studio because they have some folks in Bumper to Bumper that are going to join them. And then we'll come back and do a best of the last hour from five to six. I am traveling with Jan Morgan and uh, Zach Thomas, uh, my producer, to Dallas, Texas tomorrow because we will be broadcasting Thursday uh, from Dallas uh, at the site of President Trump's rally that he's having in, in Dallas. We were invited. We're the only radio station in Arkansas, the only show in Arkansas invited to come on down. Super. Awesome. So we're going to head on down there and do the show. Uh, if you still want to be part of it, you got a business, you want to be part of it, uh, if you'll send me uh, an email, Dave, at SalemLR.com, uh, we'll see uh, how we can make it work out for you. It won't cost you, um, seriously, it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg, and you can be part of it, and you're at a play during the show while we're on the air there in Dallas and whatnot. Then I'm coming back on Friday because we're driving to save money, and that means that best of show on Friday, just so you know. <laughs> so after uh, today, I won't be on live except for Thursday, and then I'll be back Monday, and we'll get back doing normal stuff. Cool. So we're excited about going there. I was hoping that the vice president was going to be there, but he's not going to be. I hear he's flying to Turkey tomorrow yeah. Ooh. Right. Uh, to talk to Erdogan, 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 Erdogan. Erdogan. Yeah, Erdogan, Erdogan, or whatever his name is. You know, he's a. The man who seeks to be the caliphate leader, which we could spend a lot of time prophetically yeah. talking about his yeah. potential I think you just role. filled up the next hour. <laughs> uh, interesting thing to talk about. Uh, yeah. Interesting things that are happening yep. over in the Middle East. Okay, so here's one that a lot of people get crazy. Everybody knows. Look, the mm-hmm. Lord gave me a word, and he told me he wants me to build a school. All right? Uh, now, that is... The vision that he's given me. I have not been given the provision yet. Mm-hmm. When that happens, that I'm out of talk, I'm done with it, I'm going to build the school. Amen. It's going to be a Hebraic school. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a Christian school. We're going to bring Judeo-Christianity together again. Amen. Uh, we won't take any government money, and uh, we will do as we want mm-hmm. without the government telling us what Super. to do. Amen. Uh, I will teach the theory of evolution, but I will also teach that God created the world. All mm-hmm. right, so we're going to give you both so that you can see the fallacy of one and the and the reasonableness of the other. So that brings us. This is something that we'll have to talk about at that school. What's your view on the young Earth versus the old Earth? theory I, i'm looking i'm looking over at steve buddy because this is one that he, he loves to talk about this <laughs> i mean did it take only seven days or did it take god thousands of years let's start off with you scott all right um well when um i guess if you have to think what the word day would actually mean um if you think of that as a 24-hour cycle of time, we would be we would be off there. Many people don't know this, but the Earth actually has been slowing down for several thousands of years. And so, if you 
reverse the I forget exactly how 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 much slower we are. I mean, when you guys know, but we're slowing down by a certain amount of miles per hour each year. If you reverse, if you in other words, if you go back in time, you add speed to the Earth. Okay. Right? So if you go back six thousand years, say a day would have been about twenty three and a half hours. Okay. Um, but if you go back seven billion years then we know how the dinosaurs went extinct because the globe is spinning so fast they're being thrown <laughs> off the planet. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So, uh, so, um, so it would, it would, it would lean, lean itself towards the fact that the earth is more of a um, 6,000-ish years old. However, the word day in Hebrew, the word yom, does not mean 24-hour cycle of time. The word, if you were to translate the word day into English in its fullest, it would take 52 English words to describe the one wow. Hebrew word, yom. That's incredible. So basically what yom would mean is the length of time it took God to do what he did, that was a day. And then, of course, God sets the time clock when it begins a, a, a cycle of time with the sun and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, So I don't think anyone knows exactly. Um, I favor uh, the young earth. I don't believe that God started evolution and stepped back and watched it progress. Yeah. I don't believe he did that. I believe he created Adam a full-grown uh, man, everything was started full grown. Um, and um, so I'm in favor of the the young earth myself. But as far as the actual technical things, um, I think that there is um, how much is a yom, how much is a day? I think it might be more than a 24 hour t- time period, or it could actually have been a millisecond yeah. and it was done. You know, it could have been six seconds, less than six, six milliseconds. Like a big bang. Uh, yeah, 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 right. God said, and boom. As a matter of fact, they've determined, you know, that you have uh, you have, uh, you have uh, neutrons, you have atoms, neutrons, mm-hmm. protons, but now they've discovered the smallest part of the atom is called a quark. That's correct. And a quark is, a, the scientist said, in its basic, the most easy way to explain it, a quark is sound. Yeah. So sound created the neutrons, protons, electrons, the atom. And what sound did we have in the beginning? God said. said. Yep. Well, we could spend a whole show. <laughs> wow. What is that? <laughs> we, <laughs> we could spend a whole show and a couple weeks on this. Um, but there are a lot of scientists that are jumping the ship of Darwinian yep. evolution. And there was a Yale professor. I forgot his name, but you can look, you, uh, look up the video on YouTube, and it's called Mathematical Challenges to Darwinism. Yep. Oh, yeah. Curly headed guy. Yep. And he is a mathematics professor at Yale University, and he said it is time to drop the Darwinian theory because it is mathematically impossible yep. to be reality. Not mm-hmm. improbable anymore. Impossible. impossible. It is numerically impossible. And he is not a religious man. He's Jewish, but he's not a religious yep. man. He and another man, I believe he was a biologist who was Jewish and not a religious man, and they simply made this statement. They said, if creationism is a valid scientific theory, then we will follow that trail. He said, mm-hmm. but this has got to be dropped. So we can go, and the reason I believe a young earth, young earth theory is because the scriptures give us dates, they give us names, they give us real people, and they tell us how old they were. And when you add up all of these dates and all of these times, it tells exactly when Abraham came, it tells us how old David was. It tells yeah. us how old Adam was, and all of that is less than six thousand years. Yeah, I bought I bought a scroll thing. Yeah, with when I went to when I went to the Ark mm-hmm. up in Kentucky. Yeah, and it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. When you look at it from that, that yeah. point I, I read an article um, 
couple of weeks ago, I want to say, and the title of that article is, and it was a, a scientific article, and, and the title of the article is, uh, why we must abandon Darwinism. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, this is not just something wacky Christians are saying anymore. Uh, the scientific community has finally been honest enough to look around and go, there's no way this can be true. Um, and I, I fall squarely in the young earth um, camp myself. Um, the fact that and, and the dinosaurs are the big things that people always point at and go, this is millions of years old. But understand that today we are finding dinosaur bones which have still got live DNA, live um, tissue inside the bone. And we know for a fact that tissue completely uh, disappears within a couple of thousand years. There there can be no flesh left. So um, dinosaurs, at least some dinosaurs, are certainly not millions of years old because there's still flesh on their bones when they dig them out of the ground. So um, I I understand what we're being taught in public schools, um, but what you're being taught primarily is a faith and that faith is a faith based on darwinism which is being shot completely full of holes when we were children they spoke of the missing link they don't speak of it anymore because it doesn't never find and they never found it that's right they don't talk about it no but you know the there's a a man in texas uh rose texas i believe it is his name is i've been there dr carl ball and he had an archaeologist he's um um, he has an archaeological dig there where he has a dinosaur, a fossilized dinosaur dinosaur footprint. Next to a man's footprint. And a foot, man's footprint is right inside right, of it, yep, meaning yep. they were contemporaneous with each other, uh-huh. which does not work within the evolutionary um, time right. frame. Man and dinosaur cohabitated. They lived the same at the same time. Um, I remember when, I don't remember this, but I know Mount St. Helens um, erupted. Yes. and uh, And after everything settled, and they went uh, back there. They did carbon fourteen dating of the uh, some of the trees that were all messed up and the and the rocks and so forth. But um, some of the rocks that were formed from the explosion and the trees that were done. And according to the fourteen dating they did, it showed these things to be millions of years old. Yeah. But they were actually months old. Yeah. So uh, when God created everything, He created everything. When Adam was created, He created Adam to look like probably a twenty-five-year-old man. But he wasn't 25. He was a yeah. second old. So when God created everything, he created to, to look old and feel old. But but this definitely is a young place. All right. Let me ask this question, and then we'll answer it after the break. What do you feel about the idea that some people have regarding becoming culturally relevant for the church? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? We'll hear what uh, the Bible guys have to say. Billy Miller is here, and, uh, of course, Scott is here from Agape Church, and Steve is here, Steve Hess, from the Air Force and Agape Church. Hmm. (laughs) All right, he's here as well. We'll get that answer from them when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, guys, so what do you feel about the uh, idea that some people have regarding becoming culturally relevant? Is that a good thing or a bad thing in the in the church? Let's ask the pastor. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess it depends on what they mean. If you mean adapting um, modern methods to communicate the gospel, um, such as uh, Facebook, YouTube, whatever, I mean, that, there's no problem. You use the vernacular of the day. And if the vernacular of the day is high-tech, then great, go for it. But if you're talking about 
compromising what we believe and right. lowering our standard to where our standard now matches the world that the world feels good about themselves and then people can come to church uh you know without any uh without any um seeing any difference in the way we live our life and the world the way the world lives their life then no cultural relevance is a bad thing but if you're talking about being culturally relevant in the sense of a sermon that addresses current cultural norms like we're going to deal with supreme court decisions we're going to deal with you know, um, uh, the murder rate or whatever we're dealing with. You're talking about addressing cultural issues. Hey, every prophet that ever lived dealt with cultural, yeah. with yeah. modern day cultural issues. John the Baptist looked at the king and said, "It's not law for you to, right. for you to have your 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 brother's uh, uh, wife." So, being confronting cultural culture, absolutely using the you know modern culture technology to preach the gospel, absolutely. But modifying what we believe to fit the culture. Absolutely not. The reason why the church looks the way it does today, which is very Gentile, is because That's a right. man made the church culturally relevant. This is Constantine. He stripped the church of its Jewish nature, made the church, quote, culturally relevant, which was to make it look like the Roman Empire, right. and then made the Judeo-Christian faith, faith more Roman, which is to make it more Gentile. So in that sense, I think it's... I think it's bad. So can we just say that Jesus made Jewishness culturally relevant in how he taught? Sure. I mean, yeah. he, taught I mean his... he taught differently. I mean, he was out ta- teaching on the side of a hill. He didn't make you come to the temple to hear what he had to say. Well, he did sometimes. That's where yeah. he was at sometimes. Yeah. Because that's who, he was trying to address his he culture. He was all those places. Yeah, right? he was. He was. But he took he took the word of God into the culture. Yep. He didn't bring the culture yeah, into the, word, the word, of word of God. There's, there's a couple, yeah. there's a famous interview, and I'm not trying to, I'm not going to throw the guy's name out, but um, where he was asked by Oprah Winfrey in an interview um, about the church and its stance on homosexuality and LGBT. And he said, the church is on the verge of becoming irrelevant because it will not accept this change. And he said, because, um, what was the other verbiage that he used? Um, that it will get left behind if it does not become relevant in that capacity. Oh, I've heard that more than just from that guy. Right. Let me tell and that, that is what we would all three unanimously say is absolutely wrong. You wrong. do not adjust just because, I mean, what we, now I'm going to say something. Here's a bunch of people are going to go, oh, come on. Well, what if the culture openly accepted pedophilia? Yeah. Are we supposed to go, well, yeah, we might as well adapt to that too. Don't think that's so weird because that's being yeah, talked about. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Abortion or euthanasia or right. anything else. Anything else that the Bible speaks of. So yeah. no, from that perspective, we do not become, quote, unquote, culturally relevant. All right. All right. This goes along with the young earth, old earth thing. We've got about three minutes. Uh, was the flood worldwide or regional? I've been raised that it was worldwide, but a recent article, uh, and he doesn't uh, quote where this article is, stated the flood was misinterpreted from Hebrew and was really local. I've not seen that article, but that's okay. Yeah, I've seen the theory. You have? Okay. I believe it's worldwide. Um, There are stories in other cultures about it. So Every um, major culture on the planet. Yep. Carries a flood story. The story of Gilgamesh has it recorded. So there's many other cultures that have it. So I believe as as, um, they all came out from the ark and the children of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they spread to their other four corners of the world and carried the story. Additionally, I think it's part of how we get to 
the multi-million-year-old dinosaurs. If you dump that much water on the face of the planet and move that much mud and stone around, suddenly you get things buried much deeper yeah. than things would look like they should be buried in mm-hmm. our day and age. That's simply because of a worldwide flood that moved a lot of mud around. You know, it, and you look at you'd imagine if the church was millions and billions of years old, um, we should certainly have a lot bigger trees than what we do. Yeah, I mean, think about look at look at them, almost all the same height. It's almost like they all started growing at the same time. And some of the biggest trees in the world, the sequoias, uh, when they, when, they, when a few of them have fallen or been felled during uh, storms and things, uh, I was reading about one that they took it, and they said, well, now it's a good time to date them. Six, uh, uh, it was uh, 4,800 years old. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the dating is, 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 is very Pretty close consistent. to yeah. exactly what we would expect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it, there's, a, there's one scripture when it talks about the flood going up above the high hills. Um, and when it, when it st- when the rain started to come, so I, I believe uh, the world looked vastly different prior to the flood, and it changed dramatically after yeah. the flood. And it wasn't, of course, just rain. The Bible says that the oceans of the deep the were broken the, up. Yeah. So that's some people say, well, how could it flood go over mountains if it's just raining? But it was doing a lot more than just raining. Yeah. The, the the sphere around the earth was broken, and the fountains were, bro- were were opened up. So it was a it was something unlike the world had ever seen before. And, and that may be where we get the the concept of, of Pangaea and the continents moving apart. That may have been when that actually happened. It sure. may have been in that moment, uh, which is why we end up with people dispersed so far. You know, how did you get from yep. the cradle of civilization in North America? Well, if it's a thirty mile walk, because we're all connected at that point. When you break things up, um, it's pretty easy to start moving people around while these things are floating away from Correct. each other. And I right. believe After Genesis five says during the time of Peleg, Peleg, Peleg mm-hmm. um, that the continents were the lands were still together. I think yeah. it's how it's worded. How's Pretty that? interesting. I, I love listening to you guys when you talk <laughs> about this because you bring up things that nobody. I can guarantee you, you're not hearing this in any high school. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't have to take this by faith. No. We can spend a lot of time talking about the evidence of Messiah in the scriptures yeah. before him is coming. It's not a matter of faith. This, there's more evidence to what we believe than people realize. Yeah. You know, I, I talk a lot about the fact that God never called us, because people talk about blind faith. God never called us to blind faith. Uh, again, he put the information there. It is supposed to be our duty and pleasure to seek those things out. So you don't you don't buy into Kurgarian, uh, the leap of faith. I, I I believe there is an initial leap of faith, but I believe once you've taken that leap of faith, there's plenty of evidence to back that up. I mean, if you're going to bring that up, we got to talk about postmodernism. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's All right. take a break. We got news. I'm not going to get that deep in the weeds. I promise you. We'll be back with more after the news here on the uh, the Dave Ellswick Show. Okay, a couple questions here. One specifically for me, asking me what are my thoughts about the Swedish girl who is now the champion for climate change. I've heard they're considering her for a Nobel Peace Prize. Maybe. I mean, uh, but... Obama she, won one, right? So. Yeah, but she's only saying what she has been taught to say. Right. Understand, this is not, uh, you know, what's the way I want to put it, uh, a freedom of thought on her part. Right. How's that? Is that she's not right? a 12-year-old scientific savant. No, she is not. In fact, uh, she's got some problems. Her mother has written about those problems, and it, ju- it, it bothers me that yeah. people look at this young lady and... And cheer her when seriously, 
you should be wondering who were the people who abused right. her That's to right. this point. Yeah. Rabbi Rosenberg used the term child abuse earlier. And, of course, you, if you were watching I the camera, used you flipped it, out. Yeah, because I used, used it earlier, yep. uh, to be honest. I, and I do think it was uh, abuse. Yep. And, and uh, it, it breaks my heart to watch her sit in front. You know what really breaks me heart is, a, is yeah, how old is she? 13 or 13. We have world leaders yeah. applauding her at the UN saying, you should be ashamed of yourself as she talks down to them. Yeah. And I'm just like, sad. That conversation is going to go differently in my house before my kids get up and speak yeah, to me that way. I am <laughs> so. agree with that. All right. Let's move on to the Bible, guys. What is your view of, and I love this question. This is a great question because it is very, very relevant. Now we're going to get culturally relevant. Mm -hmm. What is your view of social justice and how it relates for our faith, if at all? Oh, it's been abused. It's been abused horribly. Uh, So pick uh, pick a culture. Uh, pick a race, pick a cause, and they're going to um, slap Jesus on it, and they're going to pull a scripture that they want to pull uh, so they can make uh, their point. Um, but there is a part that, I mean, the scriptures are very clear that we are told to take care of those who are downtrodden, to take care of the poor, to take care of the orphan, to take care of the widow, and to do all of these things. Um, but if you just pick a cause and slap Jesus's name on loving thy brothers, then they're abusing what the points that he was trying to make. Right. Uh, I think that um, reaching back and and again picking a cause and trying to say that we need to rectify every single thing that has ever happened, it's ever been done by any culture to another culture. I just don't think it's right. rational. I think if social justice were really about justice, I Correct. could probably get behind it. But social justice is not about ju- justice. Social justice has become a replacement word to justify discrimination. Um, pick a group of people. Right. Um, you know, I, I heard someone say the other day that perhaps, and this was this was a politician, and I want to say it was a, a Democrat politician who said perhaps the most discriminated uh, group in America right now is white men. Um, because as a white man, you know, you can go start a black college, you can go start a women's college. I dare you to go start a white men's college. Um, and we'll see just how quickly they eviscerate you. And if you even start a black college or a women's college, you will still be guilty because you're a white man. Right. Yeah. It's still my fault somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And it, that's just absolutely true. There's a great video of, uh, but uh, the guy from uh, uh, Turning Point USA, Craig, I can't think of his last name right now, where a, a woman says, see, your problem isn't not, not what you say. It's just who you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My, my son, um, uh, he, um, he, he uh, graduated um, top of his class uh, in, uh, in uh, trust management. And, um, and so... Um, he was also the grad assistant to the professor um, for several years, actually one year even longer than what he was supposed to be. So he was at the top of his game. He was tutoring other students and so forth. And uh, as the senior year rolled around, uh, managers from all over the country come in and they basically start uh, hiring students right. out, of the, out of the class. 
And uh, so here's my son, number one in the class, top student, mentor to all these students, grad assistant. The first group of people that are chosen out of the whole class is all the minorities were all hired. Yep. My son, my son was not even touched. Yep. Yep. Second, they came in and they hired all the women. Women. Mm-hmm. So here he is. He's a he's a he's a white male, top of his class. All these people have been hired out. He has one of the people he was tutoring, who was whose score was a few grades below his. He came to my son and said, "Listen, I know why I'm being hired. I can't turn this job down, but I appreciate what you what you've done for me." Yeah. And so he does. He gets hired and goes and takes the job. So finally, the the head of the department actually called one of his previous um, uh, graduates that, that runs um, one of these one of these big national banks and said. I've got I've got my top student, highest performer, highest GPA, grad assistant. He's been passed over all these times. So what's going on? Of course, you hear the real yeah. story. But long story short, because of that intervention, my son did finally get picked up and now has a fantastic job. But the point is, goes back to what you were yeah. saying. Um, not about justice. It's not about justice. It's about discriminating against those who they believe um, deserve discrimination. Now I've even heard that now some universities, there some groups are now saying we want segregated housing. Oh yes. Yeah. So yeah. what what is that all about? That's if segregation true. was wrong. We're coming around yep. and going back to the very thing that we work so hard to get rid but of. But if it was wrong once, it still has to be wrong. Oh, today. absolutely. So it is. The only justice that's worth fighting for is the justice of God, and you only find that in His in His Word, because mm-hmm. society, social society has no form of justice outside the law of God. Amen. Just let me say right up front, no, I am not guilty. And yeah. I don't, oh. <laughs> and I do not feel guilty. Yeah. And I, whether you like it or not, I worked for everything that I have. Yep. That's the, that's the point. It had nothing to do with my skin color. Mm-hmm. Just telling you that. All right. Got another question for you. My question for your show is something that's been bothering me for some time now. What time is it? We'll take a break and let you guys answer this when we come back. All right. We don't have, we don't need to take another break. What are you telling me there, Zach? Well, well I'm taking it soon so that they'll have more time to, to answer Interim the question. Uh, how can so many people who follow the same Lord, mm. read the same book, worship the same God, be so divided and have such opposing views on such important issues such as abortion and euthanasia? We'll uh, tackle that one for the very last. You have to leave. I'm a, yeah, as soon as you go to break, I'm gone. Anyway, the, uh, the most beautiful Scott's woman going, in the world Scott's is waiting for me downstairs. Scott's getting ready to go have uh, no, dinner scared. with the uh, the governor. He's going uh, to see the governor. Yeah, somebody's got to do it. And your wife's waiting for you downstairs. And the most beautiful woman in the world is waiting for me downstairs. There yeah. you go. And uh, a woman who can dance. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> just saying. She can. And she ain't afraid to dance. get that dance on. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Not. Don't forget, uh, by the way. That uh, Tabernacles is going on, Feast of Tabernacles right. is going on, and it will finish up this Sunday. That's right. And uh, Scott, I'm sure, will have another fantastic yeah. sermon about it. We had a great one this last Sunday. And if, we we, have, if we get done with that, we've got to address more of that because we haven't really yeah. talked about Tabernacles. On yeah, Sunday. we have. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a special uh, worship night yes. on, uh, on Sunday night at 630 for anybody who would like to come in and be okay. with us. It's going to be awesome. And November 3rd is? Dr. Michael Brown. You need to circle that date. Yes, sir. I'm going to be Thank there. That's, um, I'm going back to my own church this coming Sunday, but I will be there on Excellent. the 3rd. God bless. Not only for the 10 o'clock, but isn't he preaching at 6 too? Yes, sir. 
I'll be there for both of them. Ooh. All right. <laughs> You'll tell Ace I said hi. I will do. All right. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll answer this question about the important issues like abortion and, th- and euthanasia. Why is there so many differing viewpoints? Yeah. All right. Back with us here on the, the Dave Ellswick Show. Oh, and I just shuffled my questions. And um, here it is. Okay. So... How can so many people who follow the same Lord, read the same book, and worship the same God be so divided and have such opposing views on such important issues as, and they named these two specifically, abortion and euthanasia? So I would, I think my first challenge to that statement would be that they're all reading the same book. Um, not that they're not, they don't own the same book, but. Um, Statistics in doing surveys and such proves that the vast majority of people who own that book aren't spending a lot of time reading it. Um, And we have adopted this culture which says I should view uh, the Bible through my culture rather than I should view my culture through my Bible. Um, So we can get some very weird, um, some really weird ideas. You know, if if Steve were wearing glasses that were yellow uh, in in tint and I was wearing glasses that were pink in tint, uh, we would both argue. Uh, vehemently that the whole world uh, was completely different colors from what I see and what he sees. And from our point of view, that would be absolutely 100% correct. And the problem is that we've, we've been given, we've been taught uh, a point of view in our, in our Sunday school classes, in our, in our, from our pulpits. Um, and for the last 1800 years or so, we've had a pretty skewed view of what Scripture actually says, um, and particularly in the last 50 or 60 years as we divorced ourselves from the Judeo part of our Judeo-Christian yep. culture. So I think once you once you start unanchoring from the anchor, um, then that ship can get tossed in a lot. And I did say ship. I, I saw your eyebrows go up. That ship can get tossed uh, on some pretty strong waves and end up in some really weird places. Yes, and that's the whole reason we do what we do. It's the whole reason for the American Institute, um, and it's what's driven me in the way I approach the scriptures. Um, is and so the the answer to the question is why there's so many different views. One, because people have agendas. Yep. Uh, there's the pride of man that they will never change what they see. They see it the way they see it. Is the glasses analogy that Billy gave, and it's just the way it is. Uh, they look at um, things through their cultural lens. Um, that's why Pastor Scott, when he talked about in Europe and in Israel, they're not going to have a problem with the question we talked about earlier with drinking. But here, because we came from that strict Puritan background and, and the way they interpreted some of the scriptures dealing with drunkenness and stuff, they read it through those lens. But isn't uh, it interesting that the pilgrims themselves drank beer? Yeah. I mean, and 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 for some reason, we evolved into... Well, it, it, yeah, yeah, that that really probably I, I shouldn't really maybe use them as an analogy. Probably it really came harder out of the, the the holiness in the Pentecostal and that kind of bunch. But the other thing I want to make the point Charles Finney and those guys. Yeah. Okay. Is, but the things that we all of those differences um, does come from our worldview and our approach. But we also have differences over things that we don't know, i.e., the future, heaven, hell. Yeah pre-existent world, worldwide flood, and quite frankly, things that don't matter. Yep. Those are great discussions. I do believe in the young earth theory, and I think there's a case to be made, but I'm not going to, 
I, I can be totally fine with that they were just parables that were used to get the story of creation, and I'll be fine with that. Yeah. I don't believe that. We're not that. going to separate fellowship over Correct. That. And if we really remove... Well, come on. We can do it over the Carpadina Church. We can do it over that. Uh, no. We certainly shouldn't. If we remove <laughs> the just, clutter, uh, no. you would be surprised how more unified that we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree. And as far as abortion, I don't understand any person who could say that they are a believer in Christ and are totally okay with yeah. throwing a child, carving it out of its mother's womb for no other reason than inconvenience. If yep. you have a doctor that says this woman will die if she has this child because of some medical abnormality, I respect the women who have, by faith, said, then I will die. This yep. child will live. And other people said, by faith, that we will both live. And there are stories that both lived. But if we're talking about that, we're, we're not. Did anybody that would say that it's okay to kill just because it's inconvenient, right. whether it be beginning of life or end of life? I or just would don't understand. Celebrate, correct? Yeah, yeah you, I just and don't that know is how. the new movement here yes. within our country. So now. let's go back to the question that was asked earlier. What happens if um, I'm, I'm really disappointed with my wife and we're not happy anymore? Do I have to stay married, or uh, could we get divorced? Well, uh, in this culture, why not just kill her? I mean, you know, if 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 murder's on the table for any reason when it comes to a child, what keeps that from being true for adults? Um, only because the individual can argue back. Well, that fetus puts up quite a fight. If you go watch what's actually being done, mm-hmm. that fetus puts up quite a fight mm-hmm. trying to hang on. What yeah. little power it has trying to ho- hang on to life. And I think it is the reason, uh, the primary reason, this country will end up judged. I, at some I had point. a discussion with a, a woman who labeled herself as a Christian woman who said, "You will not tell me what I cannot do with my body." I was like, uh, "That's pride." Yeah. Um, that's arrogance, and I'm not the one telling you about it. Yeah. <laughs> the Bible tells you right. about your body. Well, and, and the body inside your body is not your body. Right. That, and, that, and you've made a decision on that, its behalf. That seems to me to be the easiest point to be made. Yeah. Right. I mean, even Steve and when I you both go get a little hospital, hot, we start like, talking about abortion. Yeah, so. the, the decision on your body should have been made before you got in bed. There when, you go. Well, when you go, to, when you go to, the, to the doctor, they have two charts. They're not one. Right. There's right. one for you and there's one for the baby. Now, before somebody out there gets upset um, because of the position you find yourself in and you, you flip stations and vow never to listen to us again, understand um, that if you've that you, if you've been in the position where, A, maybe you didn't have a choice, or mm-hmm. B, you made that choice in the past, you've done nothing more than sin. And so have every one of us sitting around these microphones. That's right. There is forgiveness. That's right. Um, That's right. But just like we talked about the the woman who was caught in adultery earlier, the there's forgiveness, but the command that comes right after that is to go forth and, and sin no more. That's right. Uh, there is forgiveness to be had. Please don't don't think we're sitting here condemning you for what you've done in your past. That's right. Um, they're, they're, we're talking about those from a militant standpoint, right. not people uh, who, who, who felt lost and confused and no hope. Right. And now they feel condemnation. And there is hope out there. There's hope out there for you. There's hope out there for them. Um, if they're willing to come to the position where they understand that what they're doing is wrong. Um, Christ died for all of us and he died for them too. And my prayer would be that sometime um, God will get a hold of them and they'll realize what they're doing and they'll turn their back on. Uh, this is nothing new. When we, when we read in scripture, if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at what was happening when they passed their children through the arms of Malek, through the fires of Malek. Phew. They're doing exactly what we're doing today. We're just yeah. doing it in a clinical setting. Yeah, um, it was, and what they did was 
discussed. Well, you know, they were they were sacrificing their children for convenience sake. Um, that is what we are doing. We are sacrificing our children primarily for convenience. I ain't got I ain't got the money to have another baby. I'll, I'll just kill it. Mm. Well, that's what they or were doing do, too. It doesn't fit in my time schedule right now. So all those <sighs> things, anyway. Can, we could we could spend, before we do another question. I'd like to say something. We've been talking for almost four hours. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we have. And and I'm not. I'm just saying. We've been talking for almost four hours. <clears throat> and some of the people that listen to the show and people who write who um, send in questions, they are people. Um, who are very interested in the Bible, obviously have some sort of faith. Um, but I didn't come, I've been involved with the Lord for 22 years now. And when I got saved, I didn't know anything about the Bible. When I walked into the, the church that introduced me to the Hebra- Hebraic roots, uh, and the lady said, we study things from a Hebraic perspective. And my wife said, well, it only makes sense. Jesus was Jewish. I looked at her and I said, he was. <laughs> I knew nothing. Yeah. But here's what I know. You sound like the rabbi now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> here's what I know. Prior to that, and my wife has said this to me on several occasions, had I not had that encounter on September the 8th of 1996, we would not, we would very unlikely be married today because of the kind of man I was prior to that. And so when we talk about this and our love and our passion for the Bible, one of the things that I want to make sure that we conclude with this point is there is always hope, there is salvation, there Mm -hmm. is deliverance, no matter the sin, no matter what you've done no matter the place that you find yourself in, there is a way that you can be healed. You can be delivered. You can be forgiven. And that's what this whole story is about. If you want to go from Genesis to Revelation, this is when God said, I will redeem my creation. And the whole story of the Bible is God redeeming Adam, redeeming Adam and his fallen state. And we are all descendants of that. Amen. And so... I say with excitement and with joy the place that God has brought me from, and he can take you from wherever place you find yourself at, and he can put you in the high place of deliverance, of being set free, of being made whole, of being healed of your past, being healed of your sin, being healed of your abuse, healed of whatever it ails you. He is that God, and that's what I would like people to leave from today and any time they listen to the show that we never forget that it's about what Christ did for us and his death, his burial, his resurrection, and how we are made new in him. Amen. No matter how great your sin. That's right. God's love is greater. That's right. That's the thing to always remember. That's right. His love is greater. The person greater. he picked to bring the voice to the Gentiles was responsible for killing Christians. Yes, he was. And he said, if I could ever get a hold of that man, he will turn the world upside down for me. And and that's why he often picks Henry, mouthy, bully people. <laughs> are, you, are you thinking of yourself? No, I was looking at Billy. Oh, you're yeah. looking um, at Billy. That's all right, because yeah. I was looking at him. Right. So, you know. it, because <laughs> you look at those people, and when he when he gets a hold of those people, they can they will make a change. Yeah. And and I just that's the one thing that I look and I see in people's eyes a world that is hurting. We asked the the question that was brought up earlier about suicide and doubt. Um, because there isn't much hope when they put their faith in the world. And one thing I would encourage so many Christians to think about, you own that hope. Give that hope. Don't get caught up in griping about the politics. Don't get griping about the world. You have the ability to change people's lives by how you represent what Christ did for you. And that's what we need to, to tell and to shout and to preach from the rooftops more than any division that we have or labeling out people's sins is he can deliver you and set you free. Amen. All right. We'll wrap it up from there for Scott and for Steve and for Billy. Don't forget, uh, 
Church begins, what, at 10 o'clock over yep. at Agape. Uh, they're finishing up Tabernacles. You'll want to be there for that. I'm just telling you, Pastor Scott gave a great sermon mm-hmm. last uh, Sunday, and, and one of his associate pastors gave a great exhortation yeah, he did. before uh, the pastor took uh, the podium. With that said, I'm out of time. I will not be here tomorrow. I'll talk to you on Thursday at 2 o'clock from Dallas, just before President Trump's rally. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.